We see from studies in cold showers, it's an, a study from Amsterdam, where they have tested whether a cold shower a day of 30 seconds up to 90 seconds will decrease the sick days that they have during a, a month. They did see that people had less sick days when they go when they go into cold showers. Welcome to the Proof Podcast, a space for science-based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits that come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. In today's episode, I sit down with Dr. Susanna Soberg to talk about her research looking at how cold and hot exposure affects human health. In this conversation, you'll learn about brown fat, what it is and how it relates to metabolism, how brown fat is different to white fat, how cold exposure activates brown fat, how cold exposure affects metabolism and mood, and Dr. Soberg's recommended weekly protocol for cold and hot exposure, which comes from her research that she published in Cell Medicine Reports in 2021, looking at winter swimmers in Denmark. The science of hot and cold exposure is certainly an understudied area, but there are some interesting preliminary findings that suggest such practices can improve our health and quality of life. Both a form of good stress when performed at the right dose, similar to exercise and the consumption of plant compounds like polyphenols, cause our body to adapt and grow stronger. With that, here's my conversation with Dr. Susanna Soberg. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high fiber, plant rich diet for good long term health. And while I certainly believe in a food first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus 
contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Dr. Soberg, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be doing this. Thank you, Simon, and thank you for inviting me. I am very much looking forward to our conversation. You're welcome. I have your first book here, Winter Swimming, in front of me. And firstly, I'd like to say congratulations because I saw a post of yours just before on social media, and, and I believe you're about to release your second book. I did. I did. I just released a new book, which is the follow-up, you can say, after Winter Swimming, Winter Swimming is my first book, and it's now out in the US and Australia and other English-speaking language um, countries. So what's tell me quickly, what's the second book all about? I know that's not really the, the focus necessarily of today's conversation, but uh, if you were to, to I guess, as a, as a bit of a summary or a synopsis of each book, what is Winter Swimming all about, and, then, and what's this follow-up book more focused on? Yeah, so the first book, Winter Swimming, which is not only about winter swimming, it's just cold water immersion and it's sauna and about the club culture. Um, it's divided into the physical health and the mental health side. Um, it's You can say that it's maybe um, an introduction to my research. It's very much about the brown fat and why I went into this research. What is the brown fat? Why is it healthy? Uh, so it's the whole introduction to my research. But in the second book, which is Thermalist, you um, you get a, um, another, you can say it's another digging into the benefits of uh, cold and heat exposure, mm -hmm. homesis. It's also very much a debate about um, the, our health crisis and why I see that temperature changes um, can be um, a way to go for um, increasing our health as a preventive tool, but also a debate about um, how we today, because we are so comfortable in our society, how we can use cold and heat to um, widen our window for um, stress, actually. So it's a follow-up book, but I think Winter Swimming, that is like the first book introducing to a thermalist, and these two books are very good to, they're very connected, but not the same books. So it's, um, right. yeah, I hope people will enjoy. <laughs> yes, no, well, I'm, I'm sure they will. I think the timing's perfect. There's, there's ice bath centers and saunas opening up everywhere. So it seems like people are really interested in this as a practice and a way to improve their health. So I think there will be a big appetite for, I know there's an appetite already for winter swimming, but I, I think your, your second book will be very, very popular. In, in winter swimming at the, at the beginning of the book, you say, I feel incredibly lucky to have been able to examine the happiest people in the world, the happiest people in the world. What can you tell us about the people in Denmark who do this, the winter swimmers, who, who are these people and, and what do you think makes them so happy? Yeah, so 
Denmark and Scandinavian countries are worldwide known for being a happy place, a happy people. And it's not only because of the winter swimming, it's because of other, other you can say, um, socioeconomical status and also um, political things that we have here, which supports people. And, and, and um, But I think that we have the nature. We have something um, which many um, populations in the world maybe have forgotten more than we have. Not that we are perfect, but we definitely still go out and winter swim, especially in Denmark. We use the nature very much. Um, just for an example, so um, each person in Denmark don't have more than 50 kilometers to uh, the water. So we have the water very close by. We have a lot of forest. So we can go and take a walk in the nature and we can go and have a swim in open sea or in a lake. So it's very much something that we use already as children. We also sleep in the cold as as children in in the prom, so we put them outside, so the children sleep there, um, and mm-hmm. that is also something that is very rare. I know. So being a happy mm-hmm. happiness country, as Denmark is known for, um, is very much about us being connected to the nature. I think, um, but. I was surprised, I must say, when I went in, into my research and I started recruiting uh, winter swimmers for my study. Um, I was surprised that this saying about winter swimmers being very happy, that was actually true. They were so they were so happy and positive about my studies, about being there and being part of this. And I think that is, um, that is a phenotype for winter swimmers, which we can debate uh, maybe more the physiological reasons for uh, later. Sure. So if someone hasn't been to Denmark, how would you describe the the winter swimming culture? Is this someone joins a swimming club and then you go down to a meeting place in the morning and there's a group of people and, and you sort of get into the water together and you know walk us through what this looks like and how long people are in the water together and um, you know what is that experience like as a winter swimmer? Yeah, let me, let me just put up a scenario. That is maybe the best way to do it. So imagine that you are walking um, at by the sea and you see this group of people. They walk out on the jetty and you can see they're in their bathrobes and they are laughing and you can see there maybe three or four people. You don't have to be part of a club to do this. You can just have invite your friends to do it, right? And they meet up in the morning. I live very close by to the, with the sea here. Um, and uh, that is how it looks. If you go, uh, if you take a, a walk down the seaside here, you will see people walk out on the jetty laughing and um, enjoying that being out there in the cold, going out uh, on the jetty. And then they plunge each one of them down in the water, take a few swim, uh, what is that called? Swim strokes um, mm-hmm. in the water and then they go up again. And you can totally see that the happiness hormones kick in as soon as they get into the water. And when they then go up on the jetty and walk uh, out again, they are laughing, smiling. And it looks maybe a little bit crazy. That is also something that I have uh, thought a bit about because I wasn't a winter swimmer when I started my studies. So I was a bit like, what are you doing? This is like insanely cold. <laughs> And it, it must hurt a bit because, I mean, cold pain in, because of the cold water is definitely there. So why are they laughing? So if you don't really understand this from a practical side, trying this out, this laughing and, and being this um, enthusiastic about just this cold mm-hmm. dip, you, you kind of won't 
understand it completely. So right. this understanding this whole culture is something mm-hmm. you probably can't unless you try it. But mm-hmm. we have like a very good culture for going winter swimming in Denmark. Um, that is something that I also write about because I think it's mm-hmm. important. It's an important part. Yeah, I I understand that. I can see if if someone wasn't aware of how it affects your physiology and some of the benefits, they would think, why on earth would you subject yourself <laughs> to that horrible experience? Yes. You mentioned there that, or I believe what you, you mentioned was that before you did your PhD and, and you started looking at the effect of winter swimming on physiology and thinking about brown fat, etc., you weren't actually winter swimming yourself. Is that right? That is that is right. <laughs> so so without that history, I guess, of of doing this practice yourself, what was it that led you to pursue your PhD in metabolism and then focus on on brown fat and, and winter swimming? Yeah, so it's a really good question. So, um, so as you just said, I wasn't a winter swimming swimmer when I started my research in uh, brown fat and in winter swimmers and sauna bathers. I was, on the other hand, very interested in the physiology. So um, when I went back to university after um, working at the hospital, I needed to go back because I wanted to find out what is actually the root cause of why people get sick. Because at the hospital, you meet the sick people, but you want, I really wanted to look into more a preventive side of this. So um, preventive medicine, I thought that maybe if I could find the root cause of inflammation and maybe we can lower inflammation and stress, that will be a way to go and I can go out and give some advice to people before they actually get sick. So, but this is like more than 10 years ago, <laughs> I started this journey, but um, I did some other research in FGF21 and, and we discovered uh, the sweet tooth um, or a you can say, a hormone for the sweet tooth and the negative feedback loop to the brain. Um, And that also was interesting, but I wanted to figure out something that I could go out and give an an advice on. Do this and you will lower your inflammation and you will protect yourself a bit from being sick or you could increase your life quality. And brown fat came up as one of the new hot uh, um, uh, organs that you can... uh, explore in the body and we didn't know that much about it when I started this research. So from around year 2000, um, new studies came up where we can see that if you expose yourself to the cold, both we saw this in mice studies, but also in human studies, showing that if you are obese or if you have type 2 diabetes and you can activate your healthy brown fat, then you will increase your thermogenesis. You will increase your metabolism and burn calories in this way because you clear the sugar and the fat from the bloodstream. And because researchers discovered that you could clear um, sugar and fat from the bloodstream by activating the brown fat, they saw this as an opportunity to prevent lifestyle diseases. So... In year 2016, when I started my research, we didn't really know that much about uh, the brown fat in humans. How much do we have? Can we activate it with cold? Do everyone have it? At that time, there was 
many questions unsolved at this time. But I figured if we already know now, and I went through the literature, read a lot about the cold and activation of brown fat, a lot, lot of mice studies um, in, in, in the brown fat showed that you could activate this. But there was one really interesting study that showed that if you sleep cold by 19 degrees Celsius, in one month, then you will activate your brown fat. You will increase the amount of healthy brown fat that you have, and that will increase your insulin sensitivity. So I thought that was very interesting. There was like um, PET CT scannings of the brown fat. So I thought that was a good way to start. And from there on, I got interested in what else can we do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And I was going to ask you that um, I've always found it much easier to sleep in a, in a very cold room, even 16 or 17 degrees to be, to be fair. And when it's kind of above 19 degrees, I, I find it hard to sleep. When you say people in that study were, I think you said, did you say 18 degrees? 19 degrees yes 19 degrees uh so that's that's the room temperature were they did they also have like a, a doona cover or blankets as well that they had on top of them yeah apparently they did and had where they were wearing light clothes uh, as well mm -hmm. um so what i think is going on so i don't want people to go home and turn their heater down to 19 degrees and then sleep completely naked because i want to activate the brown fat i just want to point out that you can sleep with like a blanket or a, mm -hmm. um, a, a duet um, and you can you should think about activating your brown fat from not only from from uh, from this the core skin or something like that it's also from your face it's exposing your hands to the cold but it's Actually, I think, and this is not tested in studies, but I think that because we have cold receptors or temperature receptors in our mouth and down our throat and also in our lungs, then we have um, activation of the brown fat because of that, because that is so close mm -hmm. to the central nervous system. So inhaling mm -hmm. cold air, also when you go for a walk out in nature, just inhaling the cold air is going to activate your brown fat. Imagine that when we evolved as this human species that must be a very important organ in our body to temperature regulate us immediately as soon as we get cold because if there wasn't this very sensitive organ that can, can temperature control us then we would we would we would die very quickly and the muscles are not very efficient in sensing the temperature that quickly. It's it's way too late uh, when the muscles uh, start shivering. So uh, we have these two organs in our body that's going to save us from the cold, uh, from uh, hypothermia or hyperthermia. Uh, so it's both hot and cold. And that is going to be firstly the brown fat and then it's the muscles. Mm -hmm. I want to put a pin in brown fat and we'll come back to that. And, and sort of double click on that, particularly for, for someone who may be hearing, you know, this concept or idea of brown fat for the first time. And you mentioned before, it's, it's an organ. So there's a lot for us to, to explore there. Before that, I'm interested on your personal kind of journey here. So you weren't winter swimming, you became interested in uh, researching brown fat and, and thinking about winter swimming 
and the effect that it has on our physiology. When, when was it? Was there a certain time where you became convinced that this was going to be a practice that you would adopt personally? <laughs> it was it's such a good question, Simon. And I, I think it's very funny today because when I started my research, I was really a cold sissy. I was not a person who would ever jump into cold water. I, I was very comfortable. And I think in that way, I look like many other people um, who reject the cold and see the cold as something unnecessary for us, uh, which I definitely learned later on um, is very not true. Uh, so temperature changes kind of got interesting for me because I found these studies in people sleeping in the cold and increasing their insulin sensitivity. But all the way through this, I was just thinking, how can I use this information to to find out what I can go and give an advice on. And because I live in Denmark, I think very quickly, I was thinking, okay, so what can we do? So we have people working outside, but we also have people going out in the cold, winter swimmers. Um, so that kind of like became a very funny thing that I went to my supervisor saying, what do you think we should study winter swimming? I mean, I know that there are no studies showing that you can activate the brown fat with cold water. There was nothing at this uh, at this time, um, but I was thinking that this could be funny in a way to see if this thing that we do in Denmark is something that we can uh, activate our metabolism with. But at mm -hmm. very much later, a year later, just studying this and putting up the study and writing the ethical protocol and also recruiting subjects for my study. It was a long field study. I had to go on, on many jetties in Denmark to just observe what is actually going on. And all the way through, I was thinking, oh, my God, I'm studying this, but this is not something I want to do because I was very much rejecting the code as well. But at some point... So a group of winter swimmers wrote me and they were very persistent. They were like, you cannot study this Susanna until you try. And at this point, um, a year into my studies, I was thinking, okay, I understand the literature now. I know what's going on. I couldn't find a really good reason not to do it because I saw that it's not, if you do it deliberately and you don't have heart problems and you don't have unregulated uh, high blood pressure, it should be fairly safe to do this and it should be healthier than it's um, uh, dangerous. So I figured I can't find a good reason not to do it. And in theory, my own theory was that if I can activate the brown fat in this way, I should get a, become a warmer person. So with all this like calculation, I know I, I was thinking a lot about it. <laughs> analyzing this a lot before I went out. But then I tried for the first time and I must say, it was so painful. For me, it was so painful. And I have learned to become a winter swimmer, but it did take a while. But I just, with that, want to say that I represent very much the comfortable people out there saying, oh, we reject the cold. We don't like it. We're afraid of it. But you can definitely build up an adaptation. And it's not going to take that long. But I had to try at least three, four times before I, I felt like there was a a shift. Mm -hmm. And just for context, if someone's kind of imagining this, so you're, you're out there, you're doing your field research and you've been convinced to get in the water yourself. What's, what's the temperature of the water in the winter in Denmark? Um, so 
on average, it's it's not zero. It's it's around four degrees in in winter time. So, in October, where our winter swimming season starts, it's around uh, fifteen degrees Celsius, and it quickly goes down to uh, in October it goes down to nine, and when you get to January, it's around two degrees two or zero. It it's depending on if we have snow and ice, but it, it's mm-hmm. it's around zero degrees, two degrees in, in on average. Right, that's a that's a little bit colder than winter where I am usually in Bondi. Um, <laughs> but I was pleased to see in your in your book you actually had a photo of Bondi icebergs, and yeah. you you spoke about the the I guess the culture of winter swimming not just being something um, that people are doing or getting involved in embracing in Scandinavia, but all around the world. Yeah, it is really something that surprised me because when I looked into the literature, I could see that studies were conducted in cold water immersion uh, other places than just from the north. So I was thinking if they are interested in doing this kind of research, what's actually happening out in in, in their culture. So doing a, some research, I felt like a journalist as well. <laughs> like I had to like look up uh, where people would go and, and, and dip in the water. And I found places in China, in Japan, um, in South Africa, uh, the US and Australia. It's just everywhere. I think that these clubs and this culture has their own places in different places in the world. And everywhere where there's a mountain, you can say, and there's cold on the mountain, you will have downstream um, uh, water coming from the mountain, and that's cold. So even in countries where you normally would think, well, this is this is a hot country, you could have streams that are really cold. You mentioned two degrees and four degrees uh, earlier there when you were talking about the temperature of the water in Denmark, and we might come back to that when we talk about protocols and what would the ideal sort of temperature and, and whatnot be if there is one. But other than your research looking into brown fat and, and metabolism and whatnot, which we'll, we'll get to, that experience of you getting into the cold water and that, you know, overcoming a, a fear and I guess um, proving to yourself that you could do it, has, has that process, did that sort of journey teach you anything about yourself when you sort of reflect back on, on that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It, it taught me that I could definitely do something which I think is very, very difficult. Um, something that I reject, which was definitely the cold. I could overcome my fear. And I felt my confidence in myself also increased because I did something which I would not associate myself with. I overcame the fear of going into the cold water, the dark water, because it's also very dark in Denmark. So going down in the dark water, it's a bit unknown. It triggers my fear. It's cold at the same time. And maybe I will slip. So there is there is so many fear going on in the beginning which I overcame and I felt so proud of myself. And this can be explained in physiology as well. So what actually goes on in the brain and the body when you do this, but overcoming the activation of your fear, your sympathetic nervous system being activated and your whole body is reacting as if you're going to die. That is going to give you some confidence afterwards because you overcame that stress moment 
and that I am using today. I, I learned myself to handle my stress and I use it every day now because if I can do that, I guess there's, there must be so many other things that I can do. Yeah, that's something that I've certainly experienced myself but also have heard from other people who who put themselves into this kind of uh, context or subject themselves to extreme temperatures is that they become, I guess, a little bit more resilient or better handled, better able to handle different types of stress in their, in their life. Um, where are we at today in terms of research looking into this? So when you were doing your PhD, I'm sure part of it was, and you've spoken to this, was looking at what research is out there. Um, is this a topic that you would say is very well studied and very well funded or is it is it understudied and there needs to be a lot more exploration into the effects of cold, deliberate cold exposure on health? Oh, I love that question, Simon, because I think that uh, my journey is a good example uh, showing how little funding and how little attention this preventive medicine actually has. So um, when I started this research, I didn't have any thoughts about funding and how I'm going to be funded with the study. I was just generally just super interested in finding out in physiology, how can we actually activate the brown fat by going into nature and just in cold water, because this is going to be free for a lot of people or very cheap, at least. This is something you can do all over the world. Um, but I found out that I, it was super hard to get the funding. It's, it's like, it's a, it's not something that um, our government or other governments have their um, attention to. So uh, it took me two and a half years to get the funding for my PhD. So my PhD is actually more than six years <laughs> long because it took that much time to get the funding. And then when I got it, then it took another more than three years to, to, to do it, actually. But we did have um, a, a lot of discussions about this, what is actually the reasons why uh, natural stresses like this is not uh, put more forward as a thing that we should put more funding into. So I guess that uh, with that, I want to say that um, we need more research on cold water immersion, and we also need more research on sauna, heat exposure, just in general. But the funding is going to be very difficult, but I hope that with my studies and also other studies coming, that we will have more attention on the preventive medicine using cold water immersion. Uh, and in that way, maybe we can get some more funding for, for these kind of studies. But it's difficult. It's very difficult to, to get the attention to it. Yeah, I guess from a, a funding perspective, there's, there's no food industry or drug industry equivalent for winter swimming, maybe ice bath companies, yes. um, if they grow big enough. Yes. <laughs> Contextualize this for us. You, you mentioned earlier you were looking for um, ways to get to sort of the root cause of disease. That's what you were interested in with regards to your PhD and study in, in metabolism and physiology. How important with everything that you've learned and the, the research that exists today, how important do you think cold, deliberate cold exposure is, I guess, relative to, say, some of the big hitters that we hear people talking about all the time, like exercise and sleep and a healthy diet? 
I think that cold water immersion has a lot of um, potential uh, as a preve- as a preventive tool to um, lower uh, stress and lifestyle lifestyle diseases. So. Um, because of the benefits that we see uh, from uh, my studies, but also from others, um, and collectively it shows that this will lower your stress level, inflammation in the body, which is also preventing neurological diseases as well. So I think that this has a very uh, much potential in the future as something that we could, if we get more studies, and I also think on a long term, to get to get to see the outcomes after 20 years, after 30 years, what happens down the road when we expose ourselves to um, to this form of very, it's a very potent stressor, right? So it also it's also needed to have studies showing how much should we do. So like, what are the minimum dose and what is the higher threshold? And we need to know a lot more. But I think that when we get... Um, the window for how we're going to do this in praxis and what is healthy for the body because we no, don't want to overstress the body and here we are talking about homesis, right? So the hermetic stress in the cells. Um, but if we can get that right, I think that this is definitely something that we can use as preventive um, medicine uh, for all humans, I mean, and all over the world. So I think this is, is this has a great potential, and I really hope that this is going to be the future. For, and for someone who has has not come across the term hormesis, um, how would you define that? So hermetic stress is the process that happens in the cells, and you can uh, during stress. So hermetic stress is the healthy stress. It's also called eustress, and the bad stress is what we call chronic stress. So the body has um, ability to um, get more robust if you um, expose itself to or expose yourself to some form of stress, and when you do that, the cells get stronger. It's like the saying that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, um, but it's also potentially what um, if you expose yourself to a short-term stress, then the cells will get stronger, and you won't. Um, if you don't overdo the stress, they won't be exhausted. But we can talk more about what happens in the cells and stuff. But but hormetic stress is the good stress. That is what's going to keep our cells younger. Mm-hmm. And you say don't overdo it. So what what What's your personal kind of protocol look like at the moment? How how many times a week are you doing winter swimming? Yeah, so um, cold water immersion, winter swimming, uh, it's just the same same thing. When I say winter swimming, I also just mean cold water immersion. I just wanted to to point that out as well because people think that I, I swim all day <laughs> in the cold water. I don't. And I actually, I, I don't swim every day and I don't cold plunge every day because I'm kind of keeping to my <clears throat> my protocol, which I showed in my research, but a few times a week, um, sometimes two times a week, sometimes three times a week, because I believe in something that I call the micro-stress. So you expose your, um, your body to a low dose of stress by going into the cold water and also into the heat. And by that, I will create hormetic stress in the cells, and that's going to build them stronger I think that there is a higher threshold, which we might not know right now, but we see this backed up from studies in sauna that you can overdo it, and and in that way you can you can exhaust your system, and and it's not going to be healthy. So two to three times per week is 
what I do. Mm-hmm. And have you noticed uh, increased participation in deliberate cold exposure in, in friends and family since your research came out? Oh, yeah, and definitely. And in friends and, I mean, the whole city is like, do it even more. I don't know if it's because of me. I I, I didn't really think about that. But I just think that um, there is a growing trend. Um, it wasn't that much growing when I started my research back in 2016. It was just a little bit on its, on its way. But I have spoken a lot about this in Denmark, and it has grown in popularity, especially after COVID, actually. Mm-hmm. If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, Inside Tracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone, before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Okay, so take us through those physiological changes, what occurs. So we, we, we jump into that ice-cold water. Uh, I'm assuming, I believe it's sort of up to your neck if you're doing it in an open area of, of water or in an ice bath. 
what are the the sort of cascade of changes that occur um, in response to that? Yeah, so <clears throat> let's just start with the acute uh, responses when you you go out on the on the jetty or you before you are out ice bath and you take off your rope. If there's a cold in if there's a cold air, you already there stand in the wind and activate your cold receptors on your skin, and you have ten times more cold receptors. Uh, cold sensitive receptors in your skin that you have for heat. And I think that is very interesting and probably showing that we would need more receptors for the cold than probably for the heat because you can easily die from being in the cold a very short amount of time or or falling into water that is maybe during our (laughs) evolution that this has happened, that we have this... um, receptors trying to communicate to our brain and to our internal organs and our brown fat to activate as soon as we get a little bit cold on our skin. So that is what happening when you go out in the cold wind. You take off your rope and you activate your cold receptors. But that is not the full activation in the wind. What happens is that when you have lowered your stress level, when you stand there in the wind and you can breathe calmly and then you take your first step into the cold water. If you are new to cold water immersion, in the beginning you will feel a little bit anxious and a little bit panic and that's going to make your heart rate increase and also your blood pressure. There are studies showing that if you are new to cold water immersion, so a a beginner, then you will have an increase in in blood pressure uh, for around 20 to 40 um, millimeter mercury. Is that is that one of the reasons why if someone has uncontrolled uh, hypertension that they should be careful with this? Yeah, especially when they are uh, new to, to cold water immersion. So when you go into the cold water, you are new to this, you will have an, an activation of your sympathetic nervous system. Everybody will have that, also those who are adapted. But if you are new to this, you have the... Uh, a bit of a fear going out in the cold water uh, and it, it, it's, that's, that's the same for everyone because it's new for you so everything new the body's going to react a little bit as if this is a, just a toxic idea <laughs> just a general and maybe it actually and it is in general also a bit of toxic a thing that you're exposing yourself to when you go into the cold water mm-hmm. so that's definitely um, also something that, that you will keep reacting to but you activate your sympathetic nervous system and you also activate your parasympathetic nervous system because the diving response will start immediately as you submerge into the cold water. And if you have unregulated high blood pressure, um, this conflict or hot problems in general, this conflict of the two systems in your autonomic nervous system is going to create this conflict on the heart and a little bit of strenuous for the heart. And that could um, that is not good uh, for... Um, for, for the heart, of course. So uh, just be a little bit careful about that. And if if people sit out there and thinking, is that me? I have that. Can I still do it? Then I think you should consult your own doctor because these, these are just general rules or general advice that I give. So um, and your doctor knows your 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 um, your history. So so ask your own doctor. Okay. So you you jump into the water. You. Um, you get this activation of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. For beginners, the heart rate's going up. Um, respiratory rate is also going up at the same time. Is that right? 
Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Almost have a ventilation. Rates going up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what else is occurring? What are the, the kind of other kind of chemical changes or neurotransmitter changes that are sort of coupled with everything that you've described so far? Yeah. So study has shown both in mice studies, but also in humans already back from year 2000, that um, if you also studies dating back to 1970s show that when you go into cold water, you would have an activation of your sympathetic nervous system and your stress response. So the cold shock will happen immediately. And when that happens, you have um, an increase in, in noradrenaline and uh, cortisol is going a little bit up, but apparently not that much, which is also very good. But you will have the increase of noradrenaline, which will activate both on a synopsis between the synopsis in the brain, so as a neurotransmitter, but also as hormones. Um, and these um, stress uh, hormones that are activated in your body is going to make you um, very alert and it's going to make a, the glucose from your liver, from your muscles, um, that will be released to your bloodstream so you have um, a fuel to fight and flight, uh, fight or flight. Yeah, it's, it's, a, a, it's a life or death kind of scenario and your body is changing your physiology to help you get out of this situation. Exactly, yeah. So that is exactly why we have still the sympathetic nervous system. And even though we don't have lions or uh, other uh, dangerous uh, animals running after us uh, today, we still need to activate this uh, part of our system to keep ourselves health healthy. But we don't need it to be activated all the day, which is what happens today in our modern society. But this kind of short-term uh, amount of uh, stress activation in our body is actually healthy for us cells. So as soon as you have that activation and you also activate your uh, diving response, you have the activation of your vagus nerve and also the parasympathetic uh, activation of your uh, autonomic nervous system. So you have this activation of your stress response, but also you'll relax your, your rest and digest system, which has um, the ability to increase then uh, neurotransmitters in the brain um, for mental balance. And that is serotonin. And you also have um, uh, dopamine, which is from activation of your sympathetic nervous system, which gives you drive and it gives you um, motivation for doing this again, maybe, but also for just for anything you want to do during the during that day, uh, and it lasts for hours afterwards. Mm -hmm. So there's this, I guess, initial cold shock response, and anyone who's done this will have experienced that. What what happens though? Because it does get easier. So when you're, when you're in the water, uh, it, it sort of gets to a certain point where everything now feels much easier. And I think you've described that before as a bit of a switch. So can you kind of explain um, what's happening there with regards to, to our physiology that could um, explain that transition from discomfort to something that is a bit more of a bearable experience? Yeah. So there was like 
you can divide it into three processes. There is the metabolic process, uh, where your uh, brown fat activation, because of the noradrenaline, the increase in noradrenaline when you go into the cold water, um, is going to activate the brown fat immediately because it's so close uh, to our central nervous system. That is going to be activated, and with time, you will have an increase uh, thermogenesis of increased activation of the brown fat, which has the cause of increasing your heat in your body. So it warms you up from the inside. And the more you expose yourself to the cold, the more mitochondria you will build in the brown fat cells and they will become more efficient at heating you up and keeping you warm. So you don't, with time, you will have it easier getting warmer, but you also, that is one thing. So that's the metabolism. But there's also... Um, an increased ability for the body to um, contract in your blood vessels. So, um, because the, when, you, when you expose yourself to the cold, you will have an increase in nitric oxide. And that is something that makes your blood vessels more elastic. It makes it uh, the ability to contract and dilate even better. And also mm -hmm. circulating the oxygen around in your body. That has a lot of benefits, both for focus and for getting yourself warm and, um, and just for circulation just in general. But when you have exposed yourself to the cold multiple times, you will see that you also get red on your skin uh, when you get up from the, the cold water. And that is because the ability to... Um, to um, dilate uh, the blood vessels is going to be better. And when, then when you studies show that if you're adapted to the cold water, the, the skin gets very cold when you get into the cold water, but it, gets, it stays colder than people who are not adapted, but they are not getting colder in the core. So this shows that um, you, your skin becomes more and more as a shield the ability to contract and keep the warm blood in your core is increasing with time, with adaptation. So that is like the, the second thing that happens. But then there's also the hormonal thing. So you also have the increase of noradrenaline, dopamine, um, and the, the stress hormones just in general is going to be faster activated uh, when you um, get adapted to the cold water. Mm -hmm. So... Would, would someone who has more brown fat, would, would there, with the sort of time between jumping into the water and going from that discomfort feeling and the, the kind of cold shock to a, the more bearable stage, would that be much shorter because they have a better ability to kind of heat their body up quicker? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So if you are you're getting adapted to uh, the cold water, you will increase your thermogenesis, you will increase your ability to keep your temperature balance in your body much better. So that is one of also the results from my study showing that you get warmer, physically warmer when you get adapted to cold water. Right. And just so everyone's on the same page here. So when you're when you're regularly exposing yourself deliberately to cold water, you get this physiological response that you just described, uh, part of which results in an increase in noradrenaline, which is a, a hormone. And then that hormone activates this organ, this brown fat organ. 
um, which I might get you to describe a little bit further and, and why that's beneficial. But that's sort of where we're at the story so far. And the more or with maybe not the more is better, but with regular exposure to cold and activating this system, we can increase the amount of brown fat we have. Is that kind of a correct sort of decent summary of where we're up to so far? Yes, very good. Okay. So so brown fat as, as an organ, how is it different to, let's just say, white fat or yellow fat, the type of fat that most people probably think of when we mention the word fat? Yeah. So it's very different. So we have this, we have the white fat in the body. We want to get rid of it. It's located uh, on our uh, on our thighs and and around our uh, and on our uh, on our belly and around our inner organs. And that is where it's dangerous actually, and and increases the. Um, uh, the risk of um, cardiovascular diseases. So we want to get rid of the uh, of most of our white fat because most of us actually have too much of it, and um, we have this other kind of fat. So the white fat is storing the energy in our body, right? And that is evolutionary very important because we we do need a storage because sometimes, definitely back. <laughs> Back in the days, we didn't have enough food, uh, so we we did starve so for a while, and we did. Today we call it, we call it fasting, but we starved at some point, and we needed this storage. So the white fat storage is um, needed in our body. If we don't have it, uh, studies show uh, that these people get sick. So there are people not having the ability to store their white fat, and they are very sick. So we also need a little bit of white fat storage. The brown fat, on the other hand, is completely different. It has um, very opposite, actually. So the brown fat is increasing our energy expenditure. So the, the brown fat can um, use energy in the body and the white fat will store the energy. So the brown fat, upon activation, can um, actually decrease the white fat in our body. And on a fish, you, you can say on a, on a cell level, um, the brown fat cell also look very different from the white fat. So the brown fat cell has, if you look uh, in, maybe I can draw a, a picture here for you, but if you look at the brown fat cell, it has one um, little nuclei, every cell have that, but it has a lot of mitochondria in the cells, and these are the powerhouses in the cells, so it can be activated um, upon some kind of stimulus. And for brown fat, the most potent one is cold, and apparently actually also heat. Uh, we can get back to that. But it can be activated with some kind of stimulus. And when we do that, it will activate, and then it will um, heat up. Um, the outcome of activating the brown fat is heat. So um, when we do that, it would need some fuel to keep it activated. And that is, in, that is taking up uh, sugar and fat from the bloodstream as fuel to generate this heat. So it's a thermogenic tissue in our body. And that is why it can actually be seen as a preventive organ in our body for uh, um, obesity and type 2 diabetes. And in that way, decrease the white fat. If someone's thinking, gosh, I wonder how much brown fat I have. And, you know, maybe they've, 
they've had a scan to look at the health of their heart before and they've done a bone mineral density, uh, a DEXA scan for bone mineral density and they're, they're thinking, is there a test out there that I can go and do that will quantify how much brown fat that I have and then you can reference it against some sort of range and, and sort of work out whether you have a good amount or perhaps it's something that you need to work on. Does that exist? No, it doesn't. So we, it's the thing is that brown fat is, um, I call it, a, well, we call it, it's, a, it's defined as an organ because it is really an organ in our body, but it's located different places, six places in the body. So it's not like we can uh, take a blood sample and just say, well, because this marker is increased or something, then we know that there is a brown fat and by that we cannot quantify how much we have because, as I said, it's located six places in the body. As far as we know, we have there are, are really good studies from Leitner et al. from 2017, a study showing that if you do these kind of PET CT scanning overlays and people don't can afford PET CT scanning, so but if they can, then yeah, then they can actually measure how much brown fat they have. But what we do, and what we did in my studies is that you can inject your um, your subjects in in a in a in a trial with this uh, glucose analog tracer and that glucose upon activation so cold stimulus is going to um, be um, taken up in the brown fat cells and then you can in a pet ct scanner see where is this glucose analog tracer located now and if you have activated the brown fat it's going to take up that glucose and then we can see it on a PET CT scanning. But PET CT scannings are very expensive. So at this moment, we, we don't have a tool yet to measure how much brown fat each people have. But one thing that I have seen um, in my studies, um, and this is uh, now I'm going to give you an example of what happened in, in, in one of my um, subjects, actually. Uh, so one of my winter swimmers didn't have any brown fat um, and we saw that on the PET CT scannings um, but he um, and he reacted very differently uh, on the cooling and I cooled my subjects for multiple times as so multiple days uh, just repeating the same experiment to see if I can repeat my results um, and if I couldn't then that's also results of course but that's going to show that maybe the brown fat is not that easy to 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 uh, to activate or it's not so but what we saw here was that this person who didn't have any brown fat but was a winter swimmer he was cold already from the beginning so a person who gets easily cold and have a hard time getting warmed up again might not have that much brown fat it could be that it's very uh, correlated you can say so with time, when you expose yourself to the cold and you increase your brown fat efficiency in the cells or so more mitochondria in the cells, you will also physically get uh, warmer or, or faster warmer. So maybe you can use that as like a everyday tool to see like, okay, am I getting, am I a very cold, um, physically a very cold person? Uh, then you might not have as much brown fat or maybe if you expose you then, yourself to the cold and you still have a hard time heating yourself up then it could be that you don't have that much but if you feel the change where you feel that you get warmer by time with adapt adaptation 
<laughs> or acclimation uh, also from time to time, then you might actually have some brown fat. But we are in research trying to figure out if we can find um, markers for the brown fat in a blood uh, in a blood uh, blood sample, mm-hmm. but we are not there yet. Interesting. So someone like that that was in your study who. I believe you said they were a winter swimmer, but they had very little brown fat. Can someone like that still, through repeated deliberate exposure, perhaps increasing frequency or duration, can they can they actually increase their brown fat stores? So um, if you have very little, if you just have the brown fat, then you can increase it, but you can also make it more efficient. So um, like we saw in my study, that the amount of brown fat in the winter swimmer group didn't increase, but the efficiency of the cells increased. So they generated more heat upon cold stimulation. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have that much brown fat, you can probably get warmer by increasing the efficiency of the cells and probably grow some more beige fat in this in your body that is like a third type i'm just throwing in there simon but we can talk about it of course but if you don't have any at all if you are what we call bad negative so you don't have the the tissue even it is questionable and we don't really have the answer yet if you can transform your fat precursor cells so baby fat cells into a, a more beige uh, kind of fat cells. So they will have the thermogenic um, capacity or ability to activate more than just a total white fat cell, the yellow fat cell. So we are still having some questions about this and we don't really know, but this person or this subject I just referenced to from my own study, he didn't have any at all. So he was what I in my study called a bad negative um, subject. He didn't have any. Interesting. So what? So with the cold exposure, we're activating the brown fat, the existing brown fat that we, whatever we have, and we can make that more efficient as an organ. Um, what is it though that dictates how much brown fat we have? Is that a genetic thing that's, that's determined by our genes? Yep. Probably it's, it's both genetics, but it's also environmental. And that is exactly why it is really good to study this and see if we can grow this brown fat um, in, in a natural way, because the brown fat is activated by cold. So it's very likely that we can grow some more brown fat if we just expose ourselves to the cold and we, we get over our fear for it, because this is actually something that is making us healthy. So we can grow more brown fat, but we need to expose ourselves to the cold and to the heat because that is the most potent way of doing it because it's it's connected with our central nervous system and our peripheral nervous system. And also there is a direct pathway from the skin directly to the brown fat. So it will be activated not only from the brain, but also directly from the skin to the brown fat. So the most potent way and and is the cold and uh, changing your envir- environmental temperatures to keep yourself um, healthy in that way. Interesting. So explain that again. So when we get into the cold, the first part of the story that I understood was um, noradrenaline 
is what it gets released. Uh, we went through that in response to getting into the cold. Then that activates the brown fat. But but you there's also a direct pathway from the skin to the brown fat. Yes, there is a direct pathway also. So you can activate uh, the there are nerves going from your skin and uh, directly uh, releasing uh, um, uh, activation of uh, the noradrenaline uh, close to the brown fat. So there's like two pathways uh, going. And there is actually also um, a pathway from the muscles. So there are different ways of the body to keep the brown fat activated in order to save us. So the, the muscles are helping by increasing uh, also... Um, a hormone so it will activate the brown fat there is also the skin and there is also the brain so from multiple places in the body the signal is sent to this central organ in our body to generate heat because this is the only way our body can generate heat that and the muscles right so it, it sort of pulls in glucose um, it uses that to generate energy that energy is heating us up um, which is helping us in this scenario where we've just exposed our body to a very, very cold temperature. So if, if people are thinking, okay, that makes a lot of sense. I completely understand what the purpose of brown fat is and how it plays a different role to say white fat, which is mostly uh, for storage of energy. Um, you mentioned before though, that brown fat makes us healthy. So if we kind of go beyond the acute uh, setting where it's helping us warm up. What what are the the sort of more downstream health benefits that we get from having this brown fat working more efficiently? Uh, yeah. So if we can activate our brown fat, um, we will lower our levels of um, of glucose. Uh, and we have seen that in my uh, in my results as well, where we see that if you have exposed yourself to the cold, you have a more efficient brown fat activation, a higher thermogenesis in the body, and that's going to clear your glucose from your bloodstream faster upon just one meal or one sugar drink. So you will have a faster metabolism. You will also have a lower uh, insulin um, levels. So lower insulin production is associated with uh, being healthier. So you, you really want to have a body with which doesn't overproduce insulin because that is a sign that your cells are not um, sensitive to insulin. And when you are insensitive to insulin, you are closer to getting both obese but also getting type 2 diabetes, which is one of our... Uh, big, huge, and growing um, pandemic diseases in, in our world. So um, what we can do by activating the brown fat is a way to keep ourselves or preventing ourselves from lifestyle diseases down the road. So cardiovascular diseases, type 2 diabetes, all the major um, inflammatory diseases. So brown fat activation lowers inflammation in the body. And that has really some health benefits both on physiology but also on uh, mental health actually. So we know from studies that um, depression uh, is associated with inflammation uh, in the body. So we know that if you have high inflammation um, in the body, you also have a higher risk of developing uh, depression. So 
it is really something that we can use to prevent uh, lifestyle diseases. Has anyone looked at a sort of cohort of winter swimmers and looked sort of prospectively over time at the incidence of disease? Are people that are getting out there in Denmark or in, in Bondi in the winter, wherever they're located, and they're doing that regularly, do they have lower incidence of type 2 diabetes? Are they less likely to be overweight or obese? Do we have any data on that? Oh, I love that question. But no, we don't actually. We don't have that on a long term um, and we need studies showing um, what happens down the road in 20, 30 years. And even though we don't, we will not have the results right now, this is definitely something we should do. Um, but we have some other results that we can maybe lean to and, and look to. And that is the um, a sauna cohort um, of sauna bathers from Finland. Um, a study was conducted or started up in the 80s where they have followed now uh, the sauna bathers from Finland, more than two to 3,000 sauna bathers, and they are up to almost 25 or 30 years now. Um, and they have published regularly some studies showing the association of going into heat. And they also mm-hmm. use the cold. They roll in the snow mm-hmm. or they jump into the lake and stuff like that. So they do the contrast therapy, which is also my, my research um, and what I, I talk about. So doing this kind of like um, alternation between the cold and the heat shows in this uh, sauna cohort study. And now I'm going to point to a study they published in 2015 uh, where they show how much sauna you should use there's a higher threshold and also um, how many times per week for to see uh, the benefits and they also find how much you shouldn't cross or do uh, too much because that's gonna then um, lower the benefits um, again so there seem to be a higher threshold and that is what we also need if we just want to look at the cold without the heat then we need a cohort study for this as well what was that upper level of sauna exposure that they, they found was, was associated with benefit? Very interesting study showing association in this observational study um, shows that if you go into uh, the sauna two to three times per week, you will lower your um, risk of cardiovascular diseases with um, 27%. And if you then go into the sauna four to seven times per week, you will lower this by uh, 40%. Um, and also it shows that uh, you will lower your risk of early death by 30, 30% if you can go every day or four, or four times at least per week. But I think that um, it's important to say regarding this study that the control group were actually also sauna bathers. And I think that's that's something that we always need to debate a bit when we look at, at these observational studies. And we really need the observational studies because you cannot do a randomized controlled trial over uh, 30 years. That's not really feasible, I would say. Um, but these observational studies show that um, the sauna bathers who did two times per week in the sauna and in the cold um, and up to seven times were then compared to the control group who did one time per week. So they were the phenotype who also chose to do sauna. So I think it's very um, 
they see this dose-response um, relationship of more sauna and more health benefits and lower um, risk of dying uh, too early. Um, but there was seemed to be this higher threshold as well. So if you exceed the seven times per week, so if you go more than once every day, there seemed to be a too much strainer on the cardiovascular system, and then you increase your risk of, of cardiovascular um, diseases again. So that is where we then we talked about homesis just before, and and the phases where it's it's not healthy anymore, it and it becomes chronic stress. So you can also expose yourself to these kind of healthy stressors too much, and then it becomes too hard on your cells and your system. And if you overdo, like if you go over 30 minutes per session in the sauna, it seems also that that's going to plateau out the benefits and, and maybe even increase uh, the risks again on cardiovascular mm -hmm. diseases. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. I was wondering whether they quantified the actual number of minutes per session or if they were just looking at days of week exposure or did they offer any kind of suggestions or recommendations for the number of minutes per session? Yes. So it seems that if you go um, if you go from 10 minutes and, and up to 19 minutes, you see the most the most benefits, uh, beneficial window, you can say, from for minutes. Um, so 10 to 19 minutes was very beneficial. And if you go from 19 to 30 minutes, it seems that uh, there is a small increase in benefit, meaning lower risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, but um, if you go over 30, then it seems that the benefits plateau out at least. So you can go up to 30 if you can sit that long in a sauna, you don't, but you really don't have to. Up to 19 minutes seems to be best. But if we divide, if we look at my studies, um, my research uh, publication from 2021 shows that if you do this 57 minutes per week, um, divided on two to three days, and you divide that into minutes per day you go, and every day you go, you go two times into the sauna, uh, then you would only need to be in the sauna for 10 to 15 minutes at per session. And that I think that if we look to the Finnish cohort uh, study, I think that it corresponds to what they also have found, so minute-wise, uh, to what is beneficial. So that is also why I call this 57 minutes in the sauna uh, per week divided on two to three days, um, is kind of a sweet spot maybe where we know this is a safe zone this is healthy for you you can do this because that's going to show some beneficial effects on on your uh, metabolism okay so 10 or 15 minutes and doing a couple of those rounds and then that's twice a week yeah which adds up to somewhere around an hour or 57 minutes exactly. whatever it may be. yeah I know I say 57 um, minutes, but people should not think about this as like 57 <laughs> minutes when you say it's just because mm -hmm. in research you need to be very precise. So if I go out mm -hmm. and say one hour and you cannot find 60 minutes in a publication, then it's the question, is this the right publication she is referring to? That's why I say 57 mm -hmm. minutes, because you can find it in a, in a publication then. Mm -hmm. So just quickly on that, I'm thinking about logistics and also someone's tolerance levels is another option. So you've got, you could do 15 minutes in the sauna, have a break or get into cold and then come back and do another 15 minutes 
and you could do that twice a week, which is an hour of sauna, would it be just as effective if someone, let's say they didn't have that much time per session or for whatever reason they didn't want to do the two kind of rounds, would it be just as effective if you did 15 minutes of sauna on four days? Yeah, I think I think you can divide this into what fits your program. And I always say that if it's better to do something than nothing. Uh, so if you have you if you have time to go for one or two sessions per week, that's fine. And the body is very good at remembering uh, thermal stress. So if you have a pause uh, in your sauna uh, sessions or in winter swimming uh, for months, even the body will still remember your your adaptation. So it's not like you you lose the benefits just because you skip a week. But if you can do a couple of rounds per week, that's gonna help uh, your um, metabolism uh, a lot so go as much as you can uh, but think about not overdoing it because i think that is more dangerous for your body overdoing it than not doing it actually so i think it's very important that we talk about this beneficial window and that is like what um, i also studied this micro stressing so today it's very popular to go between um extreme hot to extreme cold and in fact not just today this has been around for many many hundreds of years but is there something is there something about exposing your body to that extreme temperature at either end of the scale in the sort of same session going directly from one to the other that is is particularly beneficial or sort of accentuates let's say the benefits of 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 hot therapy or cold therapy on their own I think that we we have many physiology studies showing what's going on in the body when you expose yourself to a cold water immersion and also to a sauna um, sessions. But I think that my research in contrast therapy is probably what we actually have right now to to show the benefits, which is is most. Um, rigid uh, setup uh, to to explore exactly that and we definitely need more studies on the contrast therapy uh, in my opinion but um, my studies show that if you go from the cold to the heat and back and forth you will have this increase in your metabolism and uh, also increase in efficiency in your in your brown fat so i think that um it's difficult to compare um, the different studies in between. I think that if we need to address that question exactly, then we need a study where we look at the cold, uh, a cold group and a sauna group who only does that and then compare it to the contrast to, to show that. But I think that if we, if we look what happens in the cells and uh, when we go into the cold, uh, you will have an increase in mitochondria over time. And using the sauna, you would use, um, you would exercise, uh, you can say, the efficiency of those uh, mitochondria. So it's not that what happens in, um, in the stress proteins in the cells from the cold is going to correspond exactly to what happens in the heat. So I think that there is what is going on in the cells which repair the cells is different in the cold from the heat. And in that way, they have like this um, um, overlapping and also uh, contributing ways of, of, of increasing our health. So heat stress and cold stress are 
acting differently and activating different stress proteins in our cells, which repair our cells and makes them younger. Mm -hmm. You mentioned metabolism a couple of times. And so we've, we've spoken about getting into the cold, brown fat generates this heat, it raises the body's core temperature. Um, in order to produce this heat, energy is required. You can't create heat out of nothing. So I'm a question that you probably get quite a bit, does this mean my metabolism increases and the energy that I use over a day will be higher if I get into cold water? And can this have a, a kind of clinically meaningful effect on my body fat levels? Yeah, I think that we have quite a lot of uh, studies, both in uh, in in mice uh, studies and also in humans, and also uh, my recent results show that you increase your metabolism when you go into the cold, um, and you get adapted to the cold as well. You increase the mitochondria in the cell in the brown fat cells, which will then um, clear the glucose and fat from your bloodstream, and that's going to keep you both warmer, but also keep your metabolism up. So you be more. Um, responsive, uh, responsive of changes in cold uh, in temperature, which is going to increase your metabolism. So you have a faster metabolism, and that's going to keep you healthier. If you're going to lose weight, is very much depending on if you can keep the balance of <laughs> intake and 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 uh, and and also how much yeah, so how much you eat, of course, because when people's metabolism go up, they tend to also eat more. So, of course, this is always a balance, uh, of course, but you increase your metabolism and you, you also increase calorie burning. So, in that way, it is keeping you um, your metabolism um, healthier. But if you will lose directly weight on the scale, that is something that we don't know yet. If we can find like a protocol for how much code do we need to do with a very restrict or um, controlled diet? Will that be, will we be able to see that on a, a weight scale? So we haven't seen those studies yet, but we do see that if we test this in mice, that they increase their metabolism and they burn a lot of calories uh, just for a short amount of cold exposure and a short amount over a short amount of time. So you can fast uh, get your metabolism going from going into uh, the cold and also the heat. In your study where I believe it was 11 minutes of cold exposure over the, over the week, right? Did you, did you look at the, the kind of magnitude of change with regards to metabolism? Are we talking about if someone's doing, let's say, 11 minutes of ice bath plunging a week, the average person, will they increase their kind of daily burn by sort of 50 calories or 100 or, or 300? Do we have any kind of idea of that? Um, no, not yet. Not yet. We don't have uh, the results for that. Um, and I'm not aware of, of a study yet that is measuring exactly that. Um, it's going to, I think that a study like that would be very good and very needed, but we don't have an exact number if you go into the cold water for this amount of minutes, you burn this amount of calories because it's also a very difficult calculation because it's also who are you studying? It's going to be a, a group which is um, very um, um, homogenic group. So we have the same subjects, almost phenotype and also 
body composition. Um, so we can do this in, in, in research, of course, and we need these studies to see how much do you burn from one minute, two minutes, three minutes, five minutes in the cold water. Um, and that would be very interesting, but we know from uh, my studies that if you do this over several uh, winter swimming seasons, so I tested this in, in trained winter swimmers, so they have been swimming for uh, at least two winter swimming seasons. So on a long term, we do see some effects on their metabolism, but we also need to see what happens uh, acutely after just a few minutes. That would be very interesting in, in the mm -hmm. future to see that. So this heat production from brown fat is non-shivering thermogenesis, but the body can also heat itself up through shivering, which I'm sure everyone or most people have experienced at some point. Do we see people that have less brown fat, do they shiver more when they're exposed to cold? Do they kind of make up for the, the, their reduced capability to do non-shivering thermogenesis by, by just shivering more as a kind of method to heat themselves up? Yes, exactly. That is what's going on. So you have these two kind of tissues in the body that can, that can increase your thermogenesis. So you have the brown fat. If you have brown fat, that is going to be activated first. But if you are lacking that organ, just like you said, then we would need the other one to activate and keep you warm. So if you easily shiver, it might be also showing that you are not exposing yourself. That could be one reason. You are not exposing yourself to the cold, which means that no matter if you have brown fat or not, you are going to activate your uh, your um, your muscles to shiver and generate heat very much faster than one who is um, adapted to the cold and therefore very efficient brown fat. So you, the window for keeping the shivering away is much shorter for a person who is not adapted to the cold. So it could be showing that you are not exposed to the cold, or it could be showing that you are um, you don't have that much brown fat. If you don't have mm -hmm. that much brown fat, you will start shivering uh, almost immediately when you get cold. So I know people who do that, actually. I don't know if you have ever met one, but um, you can totally tell if a person has a, a, a low threshold for, for cold. They easily get cold and they shiver very fast. And I just mentioned before the, the subject in my studies uh, who didn't have any brown fat, and he shivered immediately as I started cooling him down. It was... It was he was so different from the other group, um, the other winter swimmers in the group. So the faster you start shivering, the less uh, thermogenesis or um, non-shivering thermogenesis you get from your brown fat. But you can increase this if you have brown fat. You can increase this with exposing yourself to the cold. But if you don't have any brown fat, then you can also increase the efficiency of your muscle cells to increase thermogenesis, so, so heat in your body. So this also, I guess, ties back to your recommendations that I've read where possible, if you're doing this for metabolic health purposes particularly, to finish in the cold and let your body heat itself up as opposed to finishing in the hot. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, that was one of the things that I figured out while I was doing my field studies in Denmark, where I was traveling around and, and just wanted to observe what do winter swimmers in Denmark do. And uh, some of them went, uh, some of them ended in the sauna and some of them went home after the cold dip. Um, and I was just puzzled by that. I was like, okay, so why do, why do some go in the sauna and why do some end in the cold water? And I just figured out, I need to figure out what happens when you go into the cold. And because I was studying the brown fat, I was figuring, well, if you want to have the most out of this from a metabolic perspective, you will have, you, you will benefit from heating yourself up naturally. If you end on cold, you will activate your brown fat and keep it activated for hours afterwards. And that's going to increase your metabolism. So why not just do that? I mean, it could be a little bit difficult in the beginning, but very fast, you will get used to it and your body gets super fast at heating up by itself. So I tried it <laughs> because I also didn't have access to a sauna. So if you don't have that, you're going to end on cold no matter what. But just don't go into a hot shower. That is that is something that I try also to, to tell people because that's going to make your core temperature drop even faster. It's what's called the, the after drop. Um, which happens after, which happens after um, you have been into a cold uh, plunge or you've been winter swimming. Explain that again. So, what's the after drop, and and what were you saying there about not going into a hot shower? Yeah. So, if you, I I always say you should end on cold to increase your metabolism, and that is also a natural way for the body to um, uh, to heat itself up. That's going to uh, also increase the, the neurotransmitters in your brain because everything will still be activated and it's, it's just good for your overall health. But if you are freezing a lot and you are very tempted then to go home and go in the hot shower, I think that some people out there might have tried this. But if you stand in the hot shower after your cold dip and you, you keep the water on the warm uh, water and you stand there, you are very cold on the surface. Because of the hot water hitting your um, your skin, the heat receptors is going to send a signal to the brain saying in your temperature regulating center in hypothalamus will then sense that now you are getting very hot and that's going to open your blood vessels, which then will send the warm blood from your core to your peripheral tissue and that's going to um, decrease the temperature of that blood and then that will be sent back to your core where the temperature receptors in your core will then send a signal to your brain saying wow now this blood is getting very cold and you have a drop in your core temperature and that doesn't really feel that nice i would say some sometimes it's it's very severe and you start really shivering in the shower um and other times you just have the feeling of like not getting warm and you just keep increasing the heat and you are keep thinking, why am I getting colder? It feels colder. It's because your blood is circulating and trying to even out uh, the temperature. It's not that it's dangerous. It's not like that. It's just it's just a, a, a not very pleasant experience, I think, that when you feel that quick after drop in your core temperature, you will be faster at heating yourself up if you just end on cold and then keep moving and don't just go home and sit on your couch because that is also going to increase your after drop so i write about this in my book and i call it like minimizing your after drop by moving 
exercising or go home and clean. Just make sure that you are moving your body. Okay. So, so get in the cold or finish in the cold and yeah. don't jump into the heat and don't sit down. Keep moving and allow your body to heat itself back up. That's for maximum benefit from a metabolic health point of view. Yes. And thinking, thinking about metabolic health here and really healthy aging, often what comes up here or, or another sort of hot topic at the moment is preservation of muscle tissue as we mm. age. Very important for our metabolic health and it acts as a glucose sink. And so I'm drawing a lot of parallels here because the brown fat you're talking about also being able to help manage blood glucose levels too and it's its own organ, um, which I didn't fully appreciate. So it kind of seems like as we're aging, we should be thinking about protecting the brown fat stores or helping them to work more efficiently just as we would go to the gym and work out a muscle to make that more efficient and so that we build strength um, we can do similar things to help protect the this brown fat um, organ when we think of building muscle, we think of a concept called progressive overload. So we have to like go into the gym and constantly increase sets or reps mm, or weight yeah. in order to challenge the body so that it continues to adapt. Is yeah. that a similar idea here? Do we, with, with cold exposure, to continue to derive benefits, do we have to be changing things, temperature or duration, or constantly kind of challenging the body in the way that we're using this practice? Yes, I like that question. Also because this is one of my um, principles or one of my philosophies that if we change the temperature and we keep changing, I call it I call it the cold and heat training center for your muscles, for your all your cells and systems in your body. So you should see the temperature as the weight that you put on your um, on your training on your bar. Uh, and if you keep the same temperature, so the tra the same weight on your bar, you won't um, challenge your cells. And you need to keep challenging uh, the cells so it will keep itself um, um, activated and also increase the mitochondria and also stress uh, proteins in the cells, repair the cells and make them um, young and vital. So if you can change the temperature, uh, that is definitely, in my opinion, something that is going to keep your cells um, younger and make them grow in, in, in mitochondria. And that is what you want. You want mitochondrial um, growth in your, in, in your cells to keep yourself uh, healthy and, and younger, because this is, of course, for longevity and better life quality and also decreasing the risk of, of cardiovascular diseases. And just like you said, in the muscles, you want to change the weight to grow muscles, but also to increase mitochondria uh, in the cells. So that is why I say that changing the temperatures in the cold and also in the heat um, and also maybe how long time you use it is gonna um, challenge your cells. So you don't have to go into cold water that is zero degrees. I, I really don't think that, that this is necessary. There are studies showing that you could go into cold water that is 
20 degrees Celsius, or you can stand in the cold wind for 19 degrees and sleep in a cold room at 19 degrees Celsius, which we just touched upon in, in the beginning. And that is also going to activate your brown fat. So you don't have to go extremely cold. You don't have to do ice bath, directly ice bath, to have these bene- beneficial effects. Actually, in Denmark, we very rarely have ice on our water. So our swimming in nature is almost always in just floating water. So there's no ice in our water. Our water keeps changing in temperature. So if you have nature, and I think this is very beautiful, because if you have nature and you have a sea or a lake, then you don't have to think so much about this because um, the seasons is going to change the temperature for you. So the nature is the perfect place, the perfect training center for your um, thermal regulation. And I think that you asked about this for the future and for getting older and and healthier as we age. I think that we need to train our our um, our thermogenesis, training our temperature sensitivity, or train train our temperature. Um, yeah, our sense our sensitivity to to temp to temperature sorry um that's definitely gonna help us um keep our brown fat alive and that is also one thing that we that we know from published literature that when you get over the age of 40 the brown fat amount is going to decrease with age so we know that as we age that the mitochondrial function not only in our brown fat cells, but also in our muscles, is going to decrease. But that is definitely also applies to the brown fat. But we don't know if obesity or you could say the increase in obesity, which we also see from uh, the age of 40 is going up, is is that, if it's that, um, if the obesity increase after 40 years uh, of age um, is what's going to determine that you have less brown fat or it's because we lose the brown fat and that's why we get obesity, uh, obese. And that's kind of like what came first here. So maybe it's it's something in between. It's maybe both, actually. Um, yeah, So, but we want to keep it alive. That's why I say use it or lose it. <laughs> that is definitely something that, um, that people understand and people would uh, apply to if they think about the muscles because we know more about um, training our muscles than we do about training our uh, brown fat. Mm-hmm. So with training our muscles, I guess people can get a, an objective kind of look into how they're going. You can see that you're lifting more weight. Uh, you may you might even see the muscle in the mirror. Um, that's always nice. But with with this, what what are some signals that that someone can look for so if they're really inspired by what you're saying and they decide i'm going going to deliberately put my body into cold what kind of things can they keep an eye on to know that they're progressing that they might be increasing their brown fat stores or and or increasing the efficiency of their brown fat 
Yeah, I really like that question because when you go to the gym and you look in the mirror, you can see maybe that something is happening and that is going to motivate you and that's going to encourage you to come again and look in the mirror again and train in front of the mirror. <laughs> and, and you could go home and you can put new clothes on and you think, oh, it's, it's, it fits better now. But it's quite different with an organ that is located uh, close to your central nervous system. I'm just going to tell you where the brown fat is, just so people know why you cannot see it in that way. So the brown fat depot is located six places in the body, as far as we know, but it's, it's around our central nervous system. And our biggest depot is located just under our supraclavicular bones. So I'm just going to point to it in this video. So it's here. And uh, in my study, we measured how uh, close to the surface it is. And it's just one, two millimeters under the skin. So you can almost touch your brown fat here. But as it grows or it gets more efficient, you are not going to be able to see it. But what you can maybe is feel if you get easier, if you get more comfortable in the cold. So if you, for example, are going outside and you're, didn't close your jacket or you feel more comfortable when you start your cold water plunges. If you start to get adapted and increase your metabolism, increase your brown fat, then you should also get more comfortable in the cold, whether that is plunging in the cold water or walking outside. So you can use the comfort in the cold as a measure for that. If you get easier um, uh, warm, from exposing yourself to the cold, that is probably a measure of you getting more adapted and getting more um, efficient brown fat cells. Um, yeah, so that's the best measure that we have that we can we can use. But I, I also think that it is a very efficient measure actually. So feeling that you are a less cold person physically and feeling that you could you can increase your own heat faster has for me, been a very good reason for me to do winter swimming because that is definitely helping me in my everyday life. Not only just feeling that I can overcome this fear of going into the cold and it's very uncomfortable. And if I can do that, I can push that uh, bar of being uh, uncomfortable um, or being comfortable in the uncomfortable situation. But it's also helping me understand my own body better and seeing that I can actually get warmer um, and I can be warmer. Uh, yeah, it has just helped me a lot in my everyday that I don't feel as cold anymore. So for me, it's a good reason to to use the cold. Yeah, that's good feedback. So it's it's not just your ability to warm yourself up while you're in the cold water. No. But translating that to everyday life away from the winter swimming or from the ice bath, how how is your body regulating its temperature? Yeah, exactly. It's more stable, it seems. Um, my studies show that if you look at the temperature curves from my winter swimmers, we can see that their temperature is more stable and they have a higher temperature, um, uh, you could say a higher um, activation of the brown fat also during just room temperature. So they have this, but and it's more constant. So you can see that they have a more efficient regulation of their temperature balance in the body. Whereas people who are not exposing themselves to the cold, they have these excursions going a little bit more up and down, fluctuations in temperature in the body. Um, uh, yeah, so it's, it's showing that the brown fat and, 
and also the muscles are very getting very efficient like at completely getting you into that temperature where you are neutral because the body also just wants to be comfortable right so the body goes for comfortable and you expose yourself to the uncomfortable and that is when where the body gets efficient at trying to save you from from that uh, stressful situation are there any gender differences here with regards to where the brown fat is or how much um men versus women say have i'm thinking at the in the the sort of top of my mind that myself i've experienced this but also i've had uh, friends who are in relationships where at night time there's a bit of a an argument about the room temperature and (laughs) um, not always but often the female (laughs) wants it to be a bit warmer and the I'm probably generalizing here, so I realize this is not the case for everyone, but in my experience and through talking to others, um, it seems like it's fairly common that men seem to want the room cooler. And I'm I'm curious, is that explained potentially by the amount of brown fat that men have? Mm, it's a very good question. It, it has... It has something to do with the, yeah, so women actually have more brown fat than men. And uh, this has puzzled me for a while. And I, I write about it in my, I write about it in my second book. Sorry, um, I didn't figure it out in my first book. But women have more brown fat than men. And what I think is interesting is that, why does that make sense? Why would nature make sure that we have more brown fat? Uh, as as women but if we then look at the the ratio to amount of muscle mass you would see that we know that men have more muscle mass than women and because they have more muscle mass they also have a higher capacity uh, or higher ability to increase their heat from muscles women also have smaller hearts um, compared to men meaning they have a harder time getting blood circulation and blood to the fingers and to the toes and to the ears. So if we look at studies who have tested, uh, measured the temperature of hands and feet and, and ears, we see that women have um, lower temperature uh, in, in a peripheral temperature than men have. So we, we, are, we have another, you could say, um, a, a temperature a regulating system, which means that we would probably need more brown fat to keep us um, warm because our muscle mass is not corresponding to the men, which means then I've looked into this because I really wanted to find out whether this is true or not, because I've heard the same stories and I know for a fact from my own experience at home <laughs> that my husband wants the temperature a little bit lower than I would prefer. Today, we are like on the same level because now I'm a winter swimmer. I'm a really warm person today. (laughs) Um, And that discussion is not going on anymore, but it used to be like that. I want it on 24 degrees Celsius and he wants the room temperature at 22. And when you then look into the literature, that is exactly where we are, what we call temperature comfortable. So men are temperature comfortable at 22 degrees Celsius in a room and women are at 24. And it's quite a difference. If we turn the heater down to 22, then the women have to use their brown fat to activate a little bit more than in men. So it could be because of environmental causes that we have more brown fat, but it's 
probably also because we yeah we need it because we still need the same core temperature as men so if you measure my core temperature it's probably around 36.8 or 9 or something like that but and if you measure yours it's it's around the same right so we definitely need some kind of activation for our temperature so i think that could be an explanation that is just my explanation <laughs> yeah did you just settle the argument, the friendly argument for everyone? Is that the, 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 the Susanna Soberg uh, final say on room temperature? Is it 22 degrees? <laughs> 22 degrees, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> maybe we could meet on 23. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that would, that would seem reasonable. Okay, so you've mentioned inflammation and the immune system a couple of times here. I think it would be interesting to double click on, on that. How, how does deliberate cold exposure affect our immune system, if at all? Yeah, so we know from, um, from studies in old physiological, uh, physiology studies um, already well, dating back to the 70s and up until today, that if you, if you expose a person to a cold water immersion, and if this person is new to cold water immersion, then you will have a an rapid increase in the white blood cells and uh, the the microphages phages in 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 your immune system, meaning that you will have an activation of your immune system, and that also that helps on your inflammation, right? That will decrease the inflammation, but it would. But this increase in immune system that is measurable in a blood sample is higher when you are a new winter swimmer or a new cold water dipper plunger. <laughs> Has many names. Um, but it seems that when you get adapted to the cold water, so by ad adaptation, you will, won't see this increase in blood, uh, white blood cells um, uh, as if as high as when you started your uh, journey, so that might show, and we have debated this a bit in my studies as well, because in in my winter swimmers we do see that the the white blood cells and the, uh, the especially the white blood cells are not as high as in the control group, but this might be a feedback uh, that is because you don't have that much inflammation in the body. So when you decrease the inflammation in the body because you have an increase in, in, in white blood cells and microphage, which is going to clean up all this inflammation and because of nitric oxide that is going to um, increase the blood circulation and also uh, making the blood, cell, uh, blood vessels dilate and contract, you will have a cleaning up, you can say, of your blood, uh, blood vessels for inflammation and with time, you won't need that high immune response to keep your uh, inflammation down. So the more you can say it in, in another way. So if you have more inflammation in the body, you also have a high activation of your immune system um, all the time. And that might show that you have all this inflammation in your body. But cold exposure decreases your inflammation and therefore in time, 
you will see this lower in, uh, immune response. So some think that, oh, it just, then it means that you are destroying your immune system. And that is not the case uh, at all. It, it's, it's just responding to what's going on in your body. Your immune response is just responding, right? So if there's no need for a high a level of, um, uh, of leukocytes in, 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 your, in your body, then it's not, it doesn't really need to be there. So it's probably a response to that. Um, but it's also, if you look at the outcome of having an, a better immune system, a better regulation of your immune system, then we see from studies in cold showers, it's an, a study from Amsterdam, where they had tested whether a cold shower a day of 30 seconds up to 90 seconds will decrease the sick days that they have during a, a month. And they did see that, I think it was three months actually, but they did see that people had less sick days when they go when they go into cold showers, um, 30 seconds or up to 90 seconds. And after that, it didn't really matter. But we did, we did see that in that study. And I think why I, I mentioned this is because I think it's interesting that you with very short amount can activate your immune response and actually feel also better or positive enough to go to work. It could be because of activation of the immune system, but it could also be because of all the positive neurotransmitters that is going on in your brain and you feel more drive, you feel more energy and you don't feel as sick. So you can actually go to work. Um, so it could be both actually, but I think it, the important thing is the message. The message is that you feel less sick at least um, mm -hmm. and, and enough to, to get to work. Mm -hmm. Yes, and the the well, the important message for anyone who owns a business and has lots of staff is find out a way to get your staff having cold showers. <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> productivity might go up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, chronic inflammation. Mm. I think a lot of people will have heard um, or will appreciate it's it's a hallmark feature of many different chronic lifestyle diseases, um, including some of the neurodegenerative ones that you mentioned earlier. So I think most people are sort of on board that um, it's a good thing to, to not have chronic inflammation kind of lingering in the, in the background. But one time or context where inflammation can be beneficial is, is in a more acute sort of scenario. Say you, you get injured or or perhaps more relevant here is in the context of training. So if you're going to the gym and doing resistance training and you're wanting to promote these kind of positive adaptations where you become stronger or you build muscle, um, I have read in, in a few places that the cold water exposure after exercise could attenuate some of the benefits. Is that something that you've seen or, or given any thought to? Yes, I think that um, in some degree, yes, I've seen that. It's, and I think it's, it's, it makes sense because when you expose yourself to cold right after air and you can call it an injury almost. In when you go and train and you use your muscles, you, you create an, an, a local inflammation in those muscles. And you kind of need that inflammation to happen uh, because you need the muscles to grow. And when you rupture that, that's going to make the muscles bigger. So you need the, 
you need that process going if you want to create um, a hypertrophy. But if you are if you don't care about that, of course, then you can go into the code and then you will stop that process. Um, so my recommendations are that if you are if you are competing, for example, um, in if you're training for a competition or you have many competitions in within a short amount of time, then you can use the cold to uh, make your muscles less sore and that's going to help you in the competition. But if you are a person who just want to train to, to get healthy and you're not looking for hypertrophy, then I think that you could also use the cold. But if you are exactly looking for growing muscles and bodybuilding, then I think and it's very important for you to get every 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 detail of of everything from your every minute of your training and you want to grow your muscles, then you could just use your cold plunges on another day or maybe three, four hours after your training. So you don't do it right after, um, but I don't know how much this is going to affect your muscle go growth, to be honest. I, I don't know if it's just minimal, but I think I've seen people out there saying, oh no, we shouldn't do the cold plunges because <laughs> uh, it's not it's it's not good for hypertrophy. And I'm like, well, I I I really don't see that it's that much actually, um, to be honest. I don't know if it's really yeah. that big a concern. It would be interesting to see, I guess, how clinically meaningful yeah. it is. And and some people don't have the flexibility to kind of choose where are they going to put their their cold, deliberate cold exposure in, during the day because people only have so many hours in the day to fit all this stuff exactly. in. I was probably more thinking about the 40, 50, 60-year-old who is really trying to work hard in the gym to preserve muscle, to avoid sarcopenia and just stay strong. Mm -hmm. And so I was coming at it, I guess, less from a bodybuilding perspective and about the, the aesthetics, but more from, let's just say someone had the flexibility and they could position their strength training or resistance training in their um, deliberate cold exposure wherever across their day. Um, what interested me was I'd seen some of that research suggesting that going straight into ice afterwards could blunt some of the good inflammation, like you said. And and I'd heard people, and again, I don't know how well this has been formal, formally studied, but I'd heard people talking about, well, maybe maybe you do your ice exposure, cold exposure first in the morning as something that you do before you exercise. Have you come across that that kind of theory? I haven't seen a study on it, uh, but in theory, I would I would suggest that you do it uh, earlier on the day because you also activate your sympathetic nervous system and you will have the the activation of your um, of noradrenaline, adrenaline, and cortisol. So all the stress hormones increase, and that's going to give you energy and focus and drive uh, uh, right after. And if you do that earlier on the day, you can take that energy throughout the day and use that. But if you do it later on the day, then you could have problems sleeping, or maybe um, if you do it right before bedtime, some people actually sleep better before uh, when they do ice plunging before. So it's also not something that we know exactly. But it's definitely for uh, for energy, I would say, 
do the ice bath or cold showers earlier on the day. Um, and before training is a really good thing. It's just like four cups of coffee. It's Maybe it corresponds to that, right? Um, taking a cold plunge or a cold shower. <laughs> Actually, I saw a, a woman in the training center the other day. And that I know because she's going on the same um, a training team as I am. And she went to the cold shower before. And I was like... <laughs> And the funny thing is that I went on a Danish podcast and I said on a podcast that uh, if you want to if you want to have more energy to um, do better training, have a better training session, then take a cold shower before you hit the gym. And she said, I just heard on a podcast that some that a research has said this. And I was like, I, I didn't tell her it was me, but it, it was so funny. I was like <laughs> looking at her like, okay, <laughs> good idea. <Yeah. laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she said and it works i feel so energetic and i think it's very good to 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 do that instead of four cups mm. of coffee yeah mm. you can do both maybe. Well, that's when you know your message is getting out there when, when <laughs> yeah. it comes back to you like that that's always a good sign uh on the on the cold shower before bed i actually have heard and this is again this is anecdotal i did try and look up if there'd been any studies on this i couldn't find any but i had heard from uh, women postmenopausal or going through as might be perimenopause who um, are experiencing hot flashes and other kind of um, symptoms of that that period that transition and anecdotally had found the cold shower before bed to be helpful so that's that's another kind of interesting anecdote there seems to be plenty here for studies to to go out oh, oh God, and, and yes. explore um, in so many different populations you've mentioned a few times stress uh, anxiety um, and in the book you say the cold makes you feel great during good times but even better in bad times and i shared a study with you a couple of days ago uh, a friend of mine paul taylor actually brought that to my attention and they were that study was looking at I think five minutes in in water that was 20 degrees Celsius so not not particularly cold still cold but not hugely cold and that that five minutes left people feeling more inspired alert and proud unpack this this for us what we understand about cold therapy cold exposure and what's happening from a physiological point of view that can affect the way that we feel mentally yeah i think this is a, actually a very important part of what we can get out of our cold exposure and temp temperature changes the temperature regulation why this could be very interesting also for the future and we definitely need more studies on this but what happens when you expose yourself to the cold is that you have a huge increase of noradrenaline, uh, 2.5 fold it increases uh, after just a few minutes going into the cold water. And these, these results are not new or anything. This dates back also to the, the older physiology studies from, from the 70s. So we have a lot of studies showing that the noradrenaline goes up. But um, dopamine also increases uh, in the brain and about the same level um, and also within a few minutes. So this increase in dopamine and noradrenaline will help your mental balance um, in that way where it gives you drive, it gives you energy and it gives you that uh, feeling of um, that you can get more alert and attentive to the world and this connection with the world again when you have all these neurotransmitters going on in your brain and 
increase in oxytocin actually also goes on and increase in serotonin and serotonin is a, a trend, neurotransmitter that increases because uh, you have activated your parasympathetic nervous system so that gives you mental balance and way to get all these beneficial effects from um, all these beneficial effects that you get from just this one very short amount of time going into cold water i think that is um that this is amazing that you can do this for such a short amount of time and then suddenly you have all this positivity going on in your body and that is because you exposed yourself to something that is a bit toxic for the body we, we should definitely talk about the cold as something toxic it is not something that we naturally just want to go into we do this in a we use it as something that we were born into but when we go into the cold and take these cold plunges our body is screaming don't do it because it's dangerous and it's uh, uncomfortable and 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 so we shouldn't act like this is the most natural thing to do because it's not but we are exposing our advice on going on and, and use it a little bit is because it is helping our metabolism helping ourselves it's helping our mental balance that we shock ourselves very shortly and it keeps our brain alert and in the presence. And I think this is something that we can use for the future. People having trouble with depression and anxiety and um, attention is also something that is becoming a huge problem and growing problem. And probably because of all the devices and the technology that we have today that are distracting us and not we are not getting better at training our brain at being attentive to something so i think the the study that you just mentioned before is very interesting regarding that um the study have looked at 33 men and women and as you said they put them into 20 degrees celsius water for five minutes um whole body baths they call them up to the neck and they measured brain connectivity and self-reported emotional state before and after the cold water immersion. So the results showed that they got more active um, and also a more uh, alert and attentive. And they felt proud and less distressed and nervous after the cold water immersion. So these are the positive things that they've associated with um, these positive emotions with coupling that with... Um, brain uh, uh, they made these uh, uh, functional um, uh, MRI I think yeah it was. It, yeah yeah exactly it was MRI scans where they looked yeah. at the brain where it was active and they could see that the emotions of the positive emotions were activated and the negative emotions were um, decreased actually so if we look at if we then take these results and compare those to what happens in our physiology, that actually corresponds very much to an increase in dopamine, an increase in noradrenaline, and also serotonin, but also oxytocin. There are studies in mice which shows that if we take mice and expose them to cold water immersion, they will have an increase in oxytocin, which is our love hormone, right? It's our love drug in our body. And usually we don't think about uh, oxytocin as something that is increased in the cold water but i have found studies that shows this and i think it's it's very beautiful and it also shows or it explains why we feel 
this connection afterwards. And now I'm coming back to the club thing, so which is also increasing our mental health. Increasing our oxytocin level from going into the cold water will make you more connective, connecting with other people. So it increases your social skills. Increase in oxytocin makes you connect, better connecting with other people, but also with yourselves and also with nature as you are in the nature, right? So people say, I feel so connected with nature when I go winter swimming. I also feel so connected with people that I go swimming with. And I also feel very good and proud. And they also found the word proud as something that increases in this study um, from 2023. So it's a recent study. Um, so I think it, 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 it really um, comes together these results and also the neurotransmitters in the brain. So we can probably talk about um, the positive emotions increasing from going into the cold water. And from a perspective of mental health for the future, I think this is definitely a way. I hope that more studies will come. And I think that we should go this way, definitely. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in whether anyone has looked at so clearly there is an increase in dopamine, noradrenaline, oxytocin. I wonder what that curve looks like. So if if I plunge and I do a minute in five or six degrees and I get a spike in these neurotransmitters, like how long lasting is that? And does it, you know, let's say I'm someone that's suffering from depression or anxiety, is, is it enough of a, uh, an effect a kind of pulse or wave of these neurotransmitters to have some sort of clinically meaningful effect. I think that we are talking about this in a preventive way of like trying to increase our positive mindset. Um, and I think that curing depression and curing anxiety, curing panic attacks or lowering the level of them or the amount of them is another way. It's, 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 it's curing a disease, you can say. But what happens when you go into the cold water is also that you decrease your inflammation. And when you decrease the inflammation and you increase your positive mindset, my analysis of this would be that if you are depressed, then you will get less depressed. Um, but we need clinical studies to explore this more on, on, on the pathology, because it could be that some which we will also, I think we're going to learn this in the future. So studies in physical activity, for example, we don't go and give the same advice to all groups of people in our society for physical activity. Some people we say train like this because you are categorized maybe in this, this group. You could be, if you have some, for example, if you are also for, for diet and stuff. So if you are obese, if you have type 2 diabetes, then be aware of this and you can train like this. That will be good for you. If you are lean and healthy, then you can do this. That will be good for you. And also if you have different body compositions, maybe um, anaerobe uh, fitness would be better for you or more beneficial at your state. So I think in the future we will learn more about what kind of cold exposure would benefit different groups and amount of time and how cold and, and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, hopefully that hopefully we get some, some promising results because I mean, depression, anxiety, they're so complex and really 
the more tools and options that can be a benefit potentially to people, the better. So, uh, you know, I hope that people are, are looking into that. Oh, they they are. We... I know that because there was there was actually a group in in England, and I just want to pop that in because it's it's really, um, and I also have put that in my book. There is a case study with a young woman who used cold uh, water as a way of getting mentally over her depression, and she used heavily much uh, um, um, uh, medicine to cure her depression or lower the the depression at least the symptoms, but. After three months of uh, cold water swimming, she could actually get rid of all her pills. And she got out of this medical like fog that she felt she was in. And these researchers from the UK who published this case study, they followed her through a whole year. And they saw this positive change as a case study for also maybe looking more into if depression or anxiety could be cured with this kind of physical activity going into the cold water. So I think there's already something out there that is pushing it in, in the hypothesis in that direction where we can get some clinical trials on this. Hmm. What about other brain-related conditions like Parkinson's or um, Alzheimer's or even traumatic brain injuries? Uh, given given the, I guess, the the changes that are, that are occurring in the brain when you go into cold water therapy, the changes in neurotransmitters like dopamine. I'm wondering if, if this is something that you've thought about or seen in, in the literature. Yeah, so there are no studies on this for only the cold, um, but there's um, some associations to lowering the risk of uh, Alzheimer's disease if you go into um, sauna, using sauna um, and also uh, alternating to the code that is going to decrease uh, the risk of um, developing Alzheimer's disease and that is shown in these observational studies from Finland in, uh, in these cohort studies. So if we can see that from using the heat, I am, I am thinking that we might also see that from the code because cold stress and heat stress, that is just stress for the body and doing a little bit amount of that is going to increase our our health uh, both physically and mentally but we don't have it from the from the cold <laughs> let's finish with some practical stuff here um, so people can think about the application I, I think they'll be inspired to walk away from here and and try it out if they haven't already if someone has access to a lake or let's say an ocean and they said to you, look, I just want you to give me some advice, some first-time advice. I'm a bit fearful of cold, to be honest. I, <laughs> I really couldn't think of anything worse, but I understand that there could be some health benefits here up for grabs. Um, what time of the day am I doing this? Does that matter? What season? And to begin with, am I kind of just running in and running out or jumping off a pier and jumping out? Like, how should, how should I approach this as a beginner? Yes, first of all, I am totally with you, I would say to that person, because I've been there and I've been a, a person who just wants to run the other way. So I have really studied this from, a, from a, a, an angle where I... I myself needed to convince myself how to do this in the most practical and um, 
and in a way where I afterwards could motivate myself to come and do it again. And I think this is very important because motivation comes from both knowledge, because knowing why this is healthy for you, but you also have to have, uh, you have to reckon that you also have a physical memory. So it's definitely important when you do it and how you do it and the whole associations around it. So with that, I want to say that um, I have actually made, oh, I didn't, I forgot to tell you, Simon, but I have made a course about how to get started with all this and why and how and uh, take people through the whole process of getting started with it. And it's a three-week course if people are interested in this so they can get um, hold my hand or something like that when, uh, when I teach them in this. But what they can do from if they are totally new, get used to the thought. That is often what I think that people start thinking about the cold water and going into the cold water having this resistant or rejecting it in the beginning saying oh it's not for me I, I can hear that it's a good idea but it's not for me that is already the beginning so convincing yourself getting some knowledge learning how and why that is one step but the day that you decide to go I would recommend that you go in the morning because or maybe not at seven o'clock in the morning because your core temperature is a half degree lower in the morning, which means that you are already actually cold before you get there. So you could exercise before going into the cold water if you want to, but I would say later in the day, afternoon or afternoon at least, um, that is a good place because then your core temperature has come up a bit, your stress hormones, your coffee has working a bit, and then you are um, more warm and more, you can say, prepped for taking your first plunge. So this is for your first plunge. If you are adapted, it, it doesn't really matter on maybe going going in the water before bedtime is not a good idea because it's going to activate your sympathetic nervous system and all your stress hormones. But in the morning, or later in the afternoon, I would suggest that. Okay, and when that person first enters the water, so this person has never been in in water this cold before. Okay, so when they when they enter the water, uh, can you kind of walk them through what they're going to experience so they know what's what's normal and they know that what they're experiencing is normal and what to do. It's completely normal to be a little bit fearful before you step into the cold water and you haven't done this before, especially if it's an open sea because the water moves and it's probably dark. And uh, But a cold plunge is more you can see through the water so you kind of know what's in there. So your fear is going to be different depending on where you go in. But just thinking about that um, you don't have to stay there for a long time. Thinking about your breathing is probably the key uh, most effective thing uh, for controlling your nervous system so the your breath your breathing is going to be the one controlling uh, how well you would do and the first time is probably going to be a little bit difficult for you because you will hyperventilate and you cannot really control that the first time um, or some people can and I'm amazed by that but I couldn't <laughs> and and it's going to vary from people to people because some have a very sensitive nervous system and others don't so it varies and you cannot compare yourself to others so don't compare yourself to your best friend standing next to you who can go in the water and get a, a get um, 
control of their breathing in the first round. And that is not something that you can compare to others. So, but what you can do is try to lower your breathing. Breathe in through the nose and deep uh, into the lungs and try to uh, make it slow and deep and through the nose. And then you step into the cold water. You exhale completely to make room for air because you're going to hyperventilate. If you're very sensitive in your nervous system, it could be that you you are you already know that you're maybe a little bit anxious about the situation or in general an anxious person, then go gently. So you could go halfway in uh, up to the navel or something like that and then try to lower your nervous system by doing nasal breathing and if you feel that that is not for you and you just want to take the whole plunge immediately just two seconds in and then run up that is also a way to go um i don't think that it's i don't, i can't say that as one way is better than the other i think this is just options so halfway in and then completely in up to the to the neck or completely in in one you can say one second just go in and then quickly up again but yeah if you want to train um, your adaptation then in time you should try and see if you can switch from mouth breathing to your nasal breathing which is a kind of a recommendation for your whole life also your everyday but also try to do that in the cold water because that's gonna that's a way to to control your stress level right so yeah so would it be pretty rare for for a first timer to kind of stay long enough in the water to get through the cold shock and find a, a place of of calmness yeah i would say that's a, that could be a, that is rare yeah that is rare okay. especially if you are a person who works inside and you sit at a you have a desk job um, so we know that people who work outside um it could be um who work in, in the road, so builders, so they have a better cold ad adaptation than people sitting inside in room temperature or temperature neutrality, you can say. Um, so it really depends on how well adapted to the cold you are before that. So that's why I'm also saying don't compare because some people also have more muscle mass than other people. Different body compositions is also going to have an effect. How well is your circulation at your blood vessels that contracting and dilating so it's all it's all about feeling how do you feel when you go into the cold water and listen to your body that is my most important uh, message to get out there you should listen to your own body and not overdo anything and this is not a competition the cold water has never been a competition it's not a training center for competition it's a, it's a place where you go and you connect with yourself you connect with nature and you also uh, increase your own metabolism you get healthier but it has nothing to do with comparison this is a self thing selfish thing to do <laughs> it's it's a thing you do for yourself together with others so can i clarify one thing you're 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 getting metabolic benefits from the moment you start doing this even if you're only able to do across a week one or two minutes or is the minimum effective dose the 11 minutes that you found in your study? Like, how do you want people to think about this? If I am someone in that position that's going into the water for the first time, um, it, 
You know, it's not a competition. It's not about trying to do as many minutes or hours in the in the cold per week that we can do. But but is it important that we try and work our way up over time to eleven minutes a week? Is that the goal? It could be a goal. I mean, I think that it's a good goal because it's tested, uh, and I'm also a researcher of sciences. So I think that if we go and do um, something to increase our health and you want to do something that that's going to be beneficial for us uh, we need to look at research because that research is really there also to keep us safe um, it's not only to look at just positive things it's also to keep us safe because if we go for 15 minutes in a cold plunge who knows if that is beneficial for you just because you feel good afterwards uh, and you go up and you're like, oh, well, I feel good. So this is beneficial for me. Um, you might be fooling yourself because you don't see what happens down the road, um, downstream in 20 years or 30 years. You might be micro-overloading or over-stressing, chronic stressing your body. And you won't see the results um, before in a long time. So 11 minutes per week could be at beneficial and safe spot to hit and not overdoing it so um, but I'm also very much um, a scientist who talks from a micro stress perspective um, and I think that and this is not something I really came up with Hans Seely who is who discovered the stress uh, response in 1936 he published this in Nature magazine. So it's it's the homesis and micro-stressing and um and uh, looking at the body as a as a, as an organ that is healthy when we expose ourselves to some stress. Some stress is good for us because it keeps us alive, but overstressing is something that we should avoid. And finding that upper limit is something that we still need to do in research, but as long as we don't have that, I will still keep saying that 11 minutes per week divided on two to three days and only with one to two minutes at a time is probably a safe spot for you to hit. Mm -hmm. So was your protocol, it just happened to be 11 minutes or was there different times and you saw that the benefit kind of petered out, it hit a ceiling at 11 minutes? Yeah, so I was very curious about exactly this. Uh, how much should we do? And as I told you, I was not a winter swimmer when we, I started this research. I came with the, the idea that we want to go for the uh, lowest dose. So how with how little can we actually get the health benefits? Because I knew afterwards that if I'm going to do this, then I don't want to hit a spot that says 20 minutes or 30 minutes, 40 minutes per week or something like that. So I really wanted to see how little can we do. But what I did, and that is why I also um, did all that field study, is talking to a lot of winter swimmers before I wrote my ethical protocol. I wanted to figure out how much do they do without knowing what is good for them. So what intuitively feels good, and it's not like your in intuition is always telling you the truth. We know we know a lot about that, especially when it comes to snacking and sweet things and stuff like that. That is not your intuition, but it could be. <laughs> yeah, it's just dividing that a little bit. So um, your intuition could be telling you, well, now my cells are overstressed. I'm going up. I feel I had enough cold. 
And I definitely know that this threshold is a signal in the body telling you, okay, now you are starting to shiver and then you go up. But I needed to figure that out. So I asked people around in Denmark, so how much do you do? And then I took an average and saw that um, two to three times per week, if you are a winter swimmer in Denmark, then that is kind of like the the sweet spot where it's in an average of what people do. And uh, most people either, most people just dip in the water and some take uh, some swim strokes, but not many. So averaging that out, I found out that I, I, I would have to find subjects for my study who did this two to three times per week. But I didn't want to dictate how much they were in the water. I would rather just look at what happens when they're in the water if they are that group that does this two to three times per week, but that seems reasonable to me. That is like the average what people do. And I just uh, recorded that, how much time were they in the water per week and how much time were they in the sauna per week. Um, and I recruited subjects who are winter swimmers who have already been winter swimming for two to three seasons. So I knew they were already in the drill. They knew that they're not going to, stop the study or something like that they were they were also trained winter swimmers so the outcome of this was to see if trained winter swimmers have more efficient brown fat or more volume of the brown fat more increase in metabolism than a control group who were matched on age gender um, fitness level body composition and and diet i think also a great study (laughs) (laughs) yeah so i wanted to see the minimum threshold but still i wanted to to observe at the same time so but 11 minutes and 50 cold and 57 minutes Mm -hmm. of heat was what came out of that study okay so so 11 minutes of cold 57 minutes of heat that those were the numbers where people had either the most brown fat or the most sort of metabolically active brown fat. Yeah, you can see when you're then trained, uh, then 11 mm-hmm. minutes and 57 minutes in the heat, that is what um, adapted uh, okay. people to cold and heat can do. Uh, this is not something that you do the first time you go and take a plunge. You won't build up 11 minutes uh, in the first week. Uh, or I don't think that people should do that because that is also overstressing. Uh, the body like saying you don't start with a marathon right you don't run for a marathon the first day you want to start running you (laughs) you start by running maybe two or five kilometers and then you increase that so that is also my suggestion okay but that's a that's a good that's a good north star for people to kind of build up to across a week 11 minutes of cold 57 minutes of sauna and if you're wanting to optimize for those metabolic benefits to finish in the cold and not sit down, keep moving, um, which we discussed earlier. Uh, A couple other questions I have. Am I doing this with clothes on or am I jumping in to the ocean nude? Because as I understand it, there's there's different different, uh, views on that. I think that people should do what you can say socially, accepted where you are 
this is has everything to do with context, right? It could be very weird to be naked in some places where other places it's what you do. So in Denmark, we have actually winter swimming clubs where they swim naked. And that is what they do. If you have a swimsuit on, and I had actually, then you could get a little bit of of people looking at you like, are you scared of us or are you not comfortable with yourself? That is like a discussion. So you should just do what feels comfortable for you. And I don't think that people should swim with clothes on, but a swimsuit or swim trunks, I mean, that's not gonna make any difference uh, to your uh, health benefits. So swim the way or plunge the way you feel most, most comfortable, but also what feels uh, good in a social context. <laughs> yeah, I have to admit I laughed out loud <laughs> when I got to uh, a section of your book called The Disappearing Penis. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> can you share that story? <laughs> well, well, yes, I can. Um, I forgot about I forgot that story I, and and it's in the book and I I'm I'm actually happy that it's in the book. <laughs> that, that was an experience I had when I did um, my last winter swimming study which was a randomized control trial and it's not published yet but I trained my winter swimmers for um, from never trying this before. So the the study was about um recruiting people who all wanted to winter swim. And one half of the group, I trained them for winter swimming and the other group were just control groups. So we had this last person in the winter swimming group who should try his first plunge ever in his life. And this is in Copenhagen. Um, and we all met up, all the, the rest of the group and also me and also my crew uh, from my team. And we wanted to celebrate because he was the last one going in and he was so excited because he was the last one and he was his first dip. And you could clearly see and hear that he is a bit, he was a bit nervous. He was talking and laughing aloud on the jetty and everybody was talking and he was taking off his clothes and he's like, okay, now, so I go in and I gave him some instructions to how to do this. And then he went in the water together with the others and then quickly went up again. And as soon as he came up the stairs and you, and they were naked. They were naked because at this club they swim naked. He screamed, and I think that whole Copenhagen could hear this. My penis has disappeared. <laughs> and I didn't look, but I was like, okay, I, uh, I trust you. Gosh. Man, yeah. he was, but he was like the funny guy in the club. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think uh, take note, gents. I think we all <laughs> we all know what what the cold can do there. Um, okay, the on a more serious note, the the eleven minutes of of cold and the fifty seven minutes of heat. What was the, the temperature? I know it's not about being completely exact, but if someone's thinking, okay, I, with with that protocol. Um, if, if someone has an ice bath or has a sauna, are there sort of target temperatures that we should perhaps aim for? I'm tempted to say no, actually, because, um, and that is again going back to my reasoning about changing the temperature. So I think it's more important that you train your temperature regulation by changing the temperature, just like the nature would change the temperature when you go out. 
it's not important if it's nine degrees Celsius or if it's two degrees Celsius. I mean, of course, the activation of your sympathetic nervous system is going to be uh, higher and faster, um, or at least faster. Um, and, and, and because of that, you can just stay in the water for a shorter amount of time. If the temperature is higher, then you can go for a little bit longer. So I think it's just changing the temperature. And I think that you should just keep your metabolism and your uh, going by changing the temperature not every time you don't have to do that if you have a plunge and it's it's a certain degree uh, then you can keep that maybe for a week or two or whatever but changing it over time is would definitely um, uh, challenge yourselves mm-hmm. your study or at least the one that i saw in cell that was male subjects have you given any, I guess, thoughts as to whether these protocols, and, and I appreciate there just may not be evidence, but do you think for any reason the protocol um, or approach to temperature or duration would be different for a female versus a male? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you asked me this question, actually, um, because I just want to reflect on that a bit because it's, it's uh, something that people have asked me a lot and some actually get a little bit, um, uh, yeah, um, they want to discuss at least why I recruited only men for my study. And uh, I totally understand why. And being a female, that it could seem like I, I wanted males in my study, but it's not like that. Um, see, so um, I know that in the U.S., um, it is uh, almost a requirement that you include both men and women in the studies. But at this time where I did my study back in 2016 and being like a pre-PhD, I listened to my supervisors. And if they say, if you do this study, you should only look at men because that is the tradition of physiology studies at that time. And that has changed a bit now within the last eight years now. Uh, But at that time, it was like, we don't know whether this is going to be different for men and women and uh, in your, um, uh, for cold, cold exposure. But we do know that there is a difference in the amount of brown fat that women and men have. And because women also have their um, the cyclists and therefore also changes in hormones, women were in that study uh, not chosen because if women have more brown fat than men, I would need double up on the groups because I cannot compare the difference of men and women on winter swimming because the women probably have more brown fat already from the beginning. So you see where I'm going? It's like, and the study was a concept study because no one has done this before. And I needed to convince a lot of people that this was a super good idea. <laughs> and uh, so I needed to go lower numbers and I needed to be very precise of what I wanted to do. But I want to say that in the next study I did, I included both men and women. But just to say, we did include men and they have less brown fat than women. So we took the lowest bar, you can say, and men have activation of the brown fat and health benefits from this Uh, 11 minutes per week and 57s in the sauna and women do as well so it's not like you have to think about this as any difference actually it's just because of a research study that is like (laughs) very fair and square it has to be very precise then um, 
it it was it was done in that way. But women benefit from this protocol as well. There is nothing that suggests it they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to the sauna, I know a lot of people will be thinking: Does it matter what type of sauna I get into, or does it just need to be hot and uncomfortable? Uh, yeah. So on the sauna, it just needs to be hot and uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, and if you if you have an infrared and uh, and and you can get um, you just use it a little bit longer, I guess. So, any heat is good for you. So you can also use a hot tub, right? So it's just um, any heat stress and any cold stress that you can get. Um, and there are different ways of using this, of course. And uh, that is also something that I teach. But it's not like you can take the 57 minutes from my protocol and then correspond that to the same benefits using an infrared. It doesn't translate uh, directly like that. But maybe if you use the infrared a little bit longer or more, then you will have similar effects. We don't know because that is not tested with the 57 minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I must say I find sauna particularly uncomfortable. Like I would choose a, a plunge, an ice plunge over a sauna any day of the week. But I know people are, are different there. Yeah, um, but, but you're definitely not the first to say that. I have heard this before and I agree with you now that I'm code adapted. And I started as a winter swimmer without the sauna for the first three years. So three years without a sauna. And today um, I love the sauna. Now I have access to one, but I still prefer a cold dip from sitting too long in the sauna. But I just know that I need to build that up a bit. I can get up to the 57 minutes per week. Uh, I can do that, but I definitely struggle more in the heat. Often when things become super trendy on social media, it, it kind of doesn't take long for a few myths to surface. As a, a scientist that's researching this space, are there any myths out there about winter swimming or sauna, um, maybe things that we haven't covered that you would like to to sort of put to rest? Uh, Maybe I have a question, actually. Um, I don't know if you can answer it, but I'm kind of puzzled with the head dunking. I I don't know if it's because people feel more fresh afterwards. I do, but I I just put water in my face, but I don't do the, the head dunking. I'm just wondering why this is like becoming a thing that I see that everybody is doing Maybe they start by head dunking or they end with head dunking, but I don't know. <laughs> it's like I think I mean it definitely feels very fresh, but I'm conscious as well and I read in your book that blood flow to the brain actually goes down when you're in an, an ice plunge, right? So it would seem perhaps not a great idea to spend at least too long under underwater. Um, but anecdotally speaking, I think it feels good. Maybe it sends a signal to everyone around you that you're cold adapted. Um, I'm not sure, but but the 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 decrease in blood flow to the brain is is interesting um, that I was reading about in your book. Can you can you perhaps just explain what happens there? And is there any are there any kind of I guess safety protocols that one should be aware of when getting into an ice plunge for the for the first time? Yeah, I can just tell you a little about about studies in this because we have seen in studies, and this is something that was uh, performed in Denmark in at Bispebjerg Hospital, where they have tested how much blood flow uh, 
comes to the brain when you submerge into cold water up to the neck. So this is without the head dunking, okay? So um, it seems that the decrease is 30% because you activate the sympathetic nervous system. And when you do that, um, you will have less blood flow to the brain. And this is also something people can think about when they, in their daily day, just go around and are a bit stressed. When we activate our sympathetic nervous system from co-plunging or from, from stressful thoughts or something that's stressing us, we have less blood flow to the brain, which makes us think or focus, um, um, uh, or, or decreases our focus and, and alert and, and uh, attent attentiveness to, to what we are doing. So what happens when you go into the cold water is a blood flow that decreases by 30% to the brain. And that is why you feel this a bit, maybe you feel a little bit dizzy or you could feel that you are getting a little bit lightheaded at least um, in, in the water. But there is also studies um, and look a little bit into this to see what's, what's going on. And all the benefits comes from activating your cold receptors in the skin. So that's why I'm a little bit interested in what do we get from the head dunking? Do we get anything out of it? Or is it actually... Um, increasing the danger of um, of maybe getting um, too low core temperatures so or getting hypothermic. Is there any risk here? And I don't think that people see co-plunging as any risk, but I think it's very important to talk about this because the risk is absolutely there. And by doing the head dunk, it might be that our core temperature rate decreases even faster. So to get more knowledge about this, I looked into the literature and found a study from Canada showing that if you, they compared, there was comparison equation study. So they looked at multiple studies where people have uh, been um, submerged into cold water up to the neck and they saw that the heat loss, they compared the heat loss uh, in one group of, of, uh, of studies to another group of studies where they also did the head uh, dunking um, on, on top of that. And they saw that the heat loss from your core decreases by 11% or increases, sorry, the heat loss from the core increases by 11% from submerging up to the neck. And you can then add um, a heat loss rate that increases by 36% if you dunk the head. And that is because when you dunk the head into the to the water, the, your core temperature, your core, doesn't have the protection of your tissue like you have on your limbs, right? So the head is a direct way to your core. So if you dunk the head, you will have a direct pathway to a motorway to your inner organs. So the heat loss rate will increase by 36%. Um, and I think that's huge. That means that if you do a head dunk, you will be more, more likely to get hypothermic and also getting dizzy from even more um, uh, decrease in blood flow to the brain. So just be careful. And I always say that people shouldn't do this alone because it's also a safety thing that if we are together with others, we, uh, we increase the safety. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's definitely a good thing for people to keep in mind. Um, let's finish here. I think some of us 
might walk away from here and really want to channel our inner Scandinavian when we next do our ice plunge. And there's a bit of lingo in the book, Winter Swimming, that I thought we could maybe rapid fire, we could just uh, finish with these phrases. You could explain to us what these mean so okay. that we can use use these when we're ice plunging or in the sauna, um, create a bit of friendly chatter with people. Who is a radiator swimmer? Yeah, so that's a good question. And I put this uh, winter swimming lingo in the book because I think they are very funny and we use these in Denmark and, 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 and have these special sayings about people who and on how they use the cold and the heat so a radiator swimmer is one who goes into the sauna first and then plunges afterwards which is not right they should plunge first and then go into the sauna <laughs> okay plunge first then go into the sauna yeah but finish finish in the plunge yeah start and if, finish if, in the plunge yeah okay and next one what is baptism by fire. I get it, I get the feeling that there could be a few of these this week. Oh, yes. Uh, so baptism by fire is your first dip into the cold water. And this is something that we have been doing, uh, always celebrating um, the first time that you go into the cold water. So that is your baptism, you can say. Um, but remember to celebrate if you do it, because uh, that was tough and, and you are very cool because you did that. But yeah, so baptism by fire is um, a way of um, celebrating your first plunge. Um, and it's often um, combined with um, a ceremony, especially in Russia, actually, they do this. Okay, there you go. Baptism by fire. So something to be proud of. What about champagne under the skin? Oh, yeah, that is the best feeling. So... After a cold plunge, you can get this uh, tingling feeling under your skin, which you cannot really describe that well. But I came up with this word that's champagne under your skin because it's like bubbles uh, under your skin and you, it tingles a little bit. But also you can use the uh, champagne under your skin after, the, after you have been into... Um, cold water with ice so sloss ice on the water and you go into that that is the most amazing feeling that you can feel on your skin it tickles and you get this uh, champagne under your skin bubbling feeling tingling feelings under the skin afterwards so especially in very cold water so it corresponds to that eyes at eye level this one seems like a, a useful one. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So eyes at eye level. That is some. That is a saying from a winter swimming club here in Denmark because they swim. Um, they plunge without swimsuit. So they always just say eyes at eye level. That is just what we do. We never look at bodies. And and the funny thing is actually, if you go there and you have been there a few times, you would totally forget that people are naked. You don't look at it. It's just um, so natural. It's just something that they do in some clubs in Denmark. It's not all, definitely not all, but it's, there are still some clubs who hold on to this very old tradition, which goes hundreds of years back. So they keep this, but they say eyes at eye level because then you don't feel that people are looking at you. And I think it's very respectful also. It is respectful. Uh, last one. And... I'm very interested to to know the answer to this. I'd love to become a Viking. So tell me about reaching Viking status. 
do you do you need to get into the cold water once a week, twice a week? What is the the minimum frequency to join the Viking club? A Viking is something that you can become, but you have to train in the cold. So, so being a Danish Viking is something everybody can train. They can go into the cold and they can become a, a Viking of in your physiology and in your spirit. You can become very strong. Well, Dr. Serberg, thank you so much. This has been really, really informative. I love your passion. I love the backstory. I love the fact that you're bringing science to the table on a practice that's really, really uh, popular, but you're helping people uh, refine their protocol and make better use of it and also think about the, the safety. So thank you so much for the discussion and, and your contribution to all the science in this space. I'm really excited to, to watch this space and see what studies come out in future years, both from, from your work and, and others. And, um, you know, you, met, you made mention of scientists looking at the, the use of cold therapy for depression and anxiety, things like that, I think will be super interesting to keep an eye on. So thank you for doing this. I'll put links to uh, your social media accounts, to your website. Of course, you mentioned that you have you have a three-week and a 12-week course. Is that right? Yeah, the, the three-week course is ready now, so people can go and take that. But I'm also preparing a 12-week course and also an, an instructor education because I feel that in this space, we need to educate people on how to coach other people to do this because it takes knowledge to do this in a right way, in a safe way, in a healthy way, I think. And people have asked me, can you teach me this? And that's why I think that there is a there is a need for this also. And I love to teach. That is why I'm on social medias and I talk about this all the time. Um, so being a teacher is really my passion as well. So that is why I opened my 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 institute, Soberg Institute, uh, my school. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. And I, I saw on the emails, I think your team created a 10% discount for the proof community. So I'll put that into the show notes as well. And people can make make use of that if they like. And lastly, um, again, congratulations on the new book. Not necessarily the the focus of today, but I'm sure we covered some of it. But uh, if if folks are kind of wanting to get their hands on that book um, or just sort of learn more about it, um, what details can you can you give them? When's that coming out? And when where will that be available? And um, how can people get it? Yeah. So I. I definitely want to stress that Winter Swimming is a really good book to start with and uh, because that is the background story and all what we talked about today that is um, uh, in this book, in Winter Swimming, but also uh, it gives you the insights of what is uh, the brown fat and in the next book, which will come out, I'm pretty sure, I hope, fingers crossed, that it will come out in English, but we don't know yet because I just had book release in Danish of Thermalist uh, yesterday, actually, from recording this. Um, so it will come out eventually. Maybe it's in a year. Maybe it's in a few months. I really don't know at this time. But Winter Swimming is there, so you can read that and get much of the information we also just talked about. Um, but you can also go on my webpage and read a lot. You can take my courses. Thermalist is coming, but I think it's going to take a, a little bit because it took a couple of years for winter swimming to come out even so yeah <laughs> it just takes time 
start practicing your Danish. Yes. <laughs> people, people can add that to their list. Okay. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciated this. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you for having me. There we go, friends. Thank you for showing up and the effort you're making to take better control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again next week for another episode.